Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2011 Circle of Film Awards in today's episode. What's this? What's this? The simply sensational standing ovation of Royal Dalton Musical! What is this? This is where you wanna be! What is this? Been trying to do this episode for about a month and finally, finally able to actually sit down, record it. Uh, I'm feeling a lot better. Sore throat is gone. The lingering effects of the cold or illness or whatever it was uh, are almost out of my system. So, uh, yeah, things are things are looking up. Um, finished with. First round revisions, uh, fixed the computer, all that stuff. So, should be, uh, hopefully, hopefully should be smooth sailing from here on out. Uh, so today's episode, like I said, is the 2011 Circle of Film Awards. We have done every year between 2012 and 2018. And <clears throat> as we are about halfway, getting close to the halfway point of 2019... Uh, it's time to head back to 2011. Uh, there will be a 2010 episode sometime in the fall, early winter, and then we'll get the 2019 episode and we'll have completed this entire decade. And I have plans to do a decade Circle of Film Awards, so the 2010s Circle of Film Awards, which will take the winners from every category from every year and pit those against each other and see what what ends up on top um so i'm i'm excited to get into this i uh 2011 was a good year i think a a pretty strong year altogether um if i can get to it real quick you know uh top film this year i gave a 99 so you know there's there's a lot of high quality i think at the top uh, 11 films got a 90 or more or a four and a half stars from me, uh, which is pretty strong. You know, I think uh, most some of the more recent years, that number has dipped into the single digits. And 2011, pretty strong. I rewatched a couple of films uh, in the last few months from, the, from 2011 um, just to kind of get a better idea. Of, of how to keep things ordered and, and make sure things still uh, held up upon a rewatch. But, yeah, 2011 was a, a strong year for film, for all films, a lot of films. Uh, my average, I saw, I've seen 300 films from 2011. I'm, I know I've missed some. Uh, this is uh, the lowest... I mean, this is the lowest quantity of films I've seen from a year since 2015, if we're working backward, uh, which I ended up with, currently have 287 films from. Uh, and every other year outside of that that I've done the Circle of Film Awards for has been over 300. So, but I, I think 300, I don't know, 250 is probably my minimum, is what I want to try to achieve before I do these episodes. So, um, yeah. And, and that's why we also have the, the what do I call them? 
um, the look back thingy. Um, I did it last year, didn't I? No, I didn't. I didn't. There weren't any last year. 2017 had them, didn't it? Um, can't find it. Honorary oversights. That's what I'm calling them. The honorary oversights. Yes. So that is if and when necessary, um, what I can use to fill in the gaps of any year that I've overlooked. And I don't know if there's ever going to be something, you know, down the line where they'll be added in or uh, maybe they will enter in as like a wild card in the decades uh, long overlook. But even then, like what happens if I see one after that? I don't know. We'll figure it out. It's there. Movies acknowledged. Happy to do it. All right, let's get into this. It's going to be a long episode. I am already wasting time in this intro. So, like I always do, here is a compilation of the five Circle of Film Best Song nominees uh, to, to transition us into the actual awards show. And I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Life's a happy song And there's someone by my side to sing along When you're alone, life can be a little rough It makes you feel like you're three foot tall When it's just you, well times can be tough When there's no one there to catch your fall Everything is great Honey, I can't get enough of lots and lots of pots and pots of sticky licky stuff. Oh, what a sight! Oh, what a surprise! Whoa. Welcome to the 2011 Circle of Film Awards. Without any further ado, let us get right to it. The first category, first category, 10 categories, remember. Uh, first category is going to be Best Special Effects. Best Special Effects. And like I, I say this all the time, but I break effects and, and most of the technical categories down into two, two I, I group them together, I guess, into two categories. 
special effects, which loosely translates to visual effects, animation, film editing, cinematography, things like that, and tactile effects, which are costume design, makeup and hairstyling, production design, sound, and I actually added uh, stunt work to this category. I think that's where this would fit uh, if, if I had to put it in. Uh, so this is special effects. And the nominees are Drive, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, Hugo, Rango, and Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And as I tend, as I've, as I've started doing, and, and as I, how I like to do this, I will go through each nominee uh, from five to one, uh, and and just kind of talk about them and explain why they're on this list. Um, maybe depending on where they are, what prevented them from going higher on this list, um, and then who won. So number five, five number five special effects for me is drive. Now, I l- Drive is great. Drive is a great film. Uh, it doesn't have a ton of visual effects. doesn't have any animation. Uh, so it mostly gets into this category on the strength of its film editing and its cinematography, of which both are exceptional. Uh, you know, I'm going to talk about this movie a handful of times to- in this episode. And I think it is... So it- it's a movie I, I didn't know what to expect like we're in 2011 as a year now and most of these a lot of these movies on this list are going to be ones that i went into with very very little to no expectations these are a lot of movies i saw for the first time at least before i had gotten much of a spreadsheet uh before i was really super invested into movies and and the quality of movies and understanding and criticizing them so coming back to revisit this year and 2010 will kind of be the same way is is really fascinating it's really interesting to see how much um the impact of these movies has changed and affected me in the years since so it's been you know eight years or so for most of these drive is one of those movies that i absolutely did not have a clue what I was walking into and I pretty much only knew Ryan Gosling from remember the Titans at that point uh, you know he was not really on my radar I don't think I even knew who Albert Brooks was and I uh, you know I, I definitely definitely um, did not know anything at all about Nicholas Winding, Winding Refn so getting drive getting what i got out of drive and it's a lot of movie is really rewarding and i I, it's a shame like i don't feel like i can have those experiences anymore outside of maybe foreign films and uh, i miss it a lot and so drive from cinematography from a film editing standpoint um really wraps you up in this this world that absolutely is is a real world this is absolutely a a film that takes place real people uh, in a real situation with real jobs with real stakes and yet i think what refn is able to do with um 
the way this film is shot, the way it is edited, the way it is constructed and presented in the final product, he, he adds enough flair. And I think he does this to most of his films. He adds enough flair and enough uh, touches here and there to kind of elevate it into this... I don't want to say fantasy, because it's definitely not a fantasy. But he he, he gives it such a style. He, he, he makes it feel so unique. And even when you get a scene where, you know, which may just be Gosling, like, driving a car. And, yeah, he's, he's doing it really well, and he's a great driver, and, and, like, that's his job. And so, but we've seen movies with those scenes before. Maybe not exactly like this, but we've seen those moments before. But what Refn is able to do in those moments is he's able to present them in a unique way. I think that's kind of his... his uh, his not claim to fame, but but that's what he's good at, and that's one of that's why you know I really have enjoyed at least from a, an aesthetic point of view, pretty much all of Refn's films. Maybe not as much the re, you know from a narrative story character base, but at least from an aesthetic, I think he has a great eye for what looks good and what feels good, and. Uh, Drive is kind of, for me, you know, the epitome of what he's capable of. And I think, you know, you look in some of these scenes and, and the way, uh, especially how they transition in and out of musical cues and fluctuate with the score. I, I think he does a great, fantastic job um, showcasing uh, this particular talent. And uh, number five. Number four is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. I'll admit, um, as a fan of the books, first and foremost of the Harry Potter books, Deathly Hallows Part 2 was a minor disappointment. I, I still think it's a good movie. I think it's quite a good movie. But I, th- I, just, I don't feel like the film lives up to the book enough. And then, you know, like, that's my baggage, and, you know, I I don't expect everyone to have that. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of book readers and book lovers who who didn't quite, or who who did, you know, get everything they wanted out of this movie. But for me, I think it lacked a little. Um, However, from a a technical standpoint, the visual effects in Deathly Hallows Part 2 are outstanding. Uh, What element of them is animation is is very well done uh it's film editing and cinematography is good (laughs) uh i think the cinematography is generally strong i think the film editing is generally strong neither of those two elements are quite exceptional uh but i think they're both very good uh and i think as a whole with the the exceptional visual effects and, and whatnot i think deathly hallows earns its way into this list uh you know we you get the the huge battle at hogwarts you have everything that takes place in gringotts uh the dragon there's so much happening in this movie it kind of shucks most of the narrative most of the plot that happens in part one and it's just an effects extravaganza in part two uh when they climb into the painting when they you know the once the barrier around Hogwarts disintegrates and, and like the bridge collapsing at that moment with Neville and, and 
everything that happens with Nagini and and the fight between Harry and Voldemort, like so many of these things. Uh, one of the like what what I love about this series and what I think it's done so well is even early on in the even in the first couple of movies, it makes it, the the effects make it feel like it's real. And I mean, obviously, that's like kind of what the point of effects are to do, you know, make it feel like this is real when it's not. And magic is hard to do, uh, especially the type of magic as presented in the Harry Potter movies. And I think re- reducing the the types of spells to kind of like two or three mostly that are ever used uh, in like the last two or three movies helps. Um, as opposed to looking in like the first two movies where they were using you know dozens of different spells and you know had to have all the words and all that stuff and now you don't have that at the end of the series and that definitely goes a long way <laughs> um, but just the way it looks like you you feel you know yeah maybe these wands are just like they shoot bullets of magic basically but they feel real when Harry goes to um, the white train station, the white platform with Dumbledore towards the end of the film, like it feels authentic, you know, when they're out in uh, the Forbidden Forest, when they're, you know, climbing and, and chasing everybody through uh, the, the, the hellfire in, in the Room of Requirement, like all of these things generally feel authentic and real and look great. I think hellfire in the Room of Requirement might be the shakiest element that I can recall, but I, on the whole, I think it's it's a very exceptional work from a special effects standpoint, uh, visually from the animation. I think parts of this, you know, some of these shots, like the the whole castle cinematography of this castle has always been fantastic, and they do not let you down in the final sequence. So, um, yeah. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, number four. Number three is Rango. Rango. You guys remember this movie? It won Best Animated Feature this year at the Oscars. I think it's exceptional. Uh, I rewatched it not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, and it really holds up for me. Uh, the animation is really good. The uh, cinematography is is pretty surprisingly effective. Um, Johnny Depp plays the titular Rango, and there are just so many sort of unorthodox and bizarre moments in this movie. You know, there's a lot of motion capture for the movements of the characters that I think really does translate well to the animation. There is a lot of sweeping shots and and wide open landscapes in the desert. Uh, There's a lot of weird looking creatures and and, and strange looking animals that are in this movie. And they all are rendered, I think, very, very well. And you just, you end up with this world that... There's a shot towards the, like, two-thirds of the way through the movie where Rango kind of, like, out on his own, and he reaches the cusp of this sort of overlook, and 
you get to see this huge city in front of him. And that city, I don't know, you, you, despite the fact that you start the movie in the back of a car, you kind of lose your track, I, and at least I do, watching it, that this is something that takes place in the real world, that it's not just, um, you know, it, it, it's not Toy Story where you're constantly being reminded that there are humans walking around, that you're in a house and all that stuff. Rango gets deeply entrenched in the politics and characters in this desert, these animals, and I find myself lost in that part of the story until we have Rango get back into and, and, in, and, and visually seeing civilization and human beings. That shot is great, and then, you know, you revert back into him fixing problems and, and trying to save the day at the end of the movie, and by that point, there's so much, you know, you have just enough context that when you see, you know, these characters, these animal characters, and they're supposed to, you know, they're kind of analogs for humans, and they're animated in such a way where they kind of move like humans, but they also move like animals, and it's a, it's a really delicate balance, and I think the visual effects team, the animation team, does such a good job of walking that line, never fully committing to either way, and somehow getting it getting across to the other side, it's, I just, I, I think there's a lot, a lot to enjoy. There are so many character types in this movie, whether that be animal species, whether that be, you know, ages that they have to con, um, compare sizes. There's a huge, huge rattlesnake voiced by Bill Nye in this movie, and he is fearsome. He is he is imposing. He is enormous, and you know, putting him up against some of these buildings, putting him up against um, some of these other characters who are tiny. Who are, you know, it's difficult to uh, you know get the scales right. You know, you see that all the time, even in recent movies now, where you have these big creatures or small creatures, and getting the scales right against humans and against other things is not always easy. Uh, or making scenes where that happens is not always easy because of how much goes into the work of creating them. And I think it's a little easier when everything is animated, but they do a good job of making it feel physically present. Um, these varying levels of flying creatures, crawling, digging, slithering, running, um, and so on. I think it's it's a really... It, the, the animation just really holds up uh, eight years later. And if you have, if you don't remember it, you should rewatch it or watch it for the first time. Number three, Rango. Number two, Runner Up. Runner Up, uh, best special effects 2011, is Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I love this series. Um, if you've been listening to any of these episodes, you know that War for Planet of the Apes won Best Picture for me uh, in uh, 20... what was it? 17? Yes. And so, like, I, I think Andy Serkis is great in these movies. You can't deny, and I, you know, eight years later, I think you look back at Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and the effects aren't... I don't know. You can definitely see the flaws and the holes in them. 
but for the time, they were great. They've steadily improved as they've gone on. Uh, it's it's just, I mean, it's so close this year, I think. Uh, so close to Hugo. But the apes look outstanding when, when Caesar grabs the taser from Malfoy and yells no for the first time. Oh, man. Uh, just the, the combination of Circus's performance, the motion capture, the visual effects, the rendering, the dozens and dozens of other apes in the enclosure rattling their cages and, and you know, screeching. Uh, the, the entire action sequence on the Golden Gate Bridge. So much of that is... is it's sort of unfathomable, you know, watching it. They're real apes. They are really there. They're absolutely interacting with these humans. They're, you know, Caesar and James Franco's character are just completely, you know, both present in the same room. And yet, you know, they're not like that. You know, it's not that. It's it's being told to you. And just to watch as we get, you know, more apes involved in the story. And then, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge ending is is such a great progression for the animation for the visual effects team uh, on top of that i think the film has some pretty strong editing i think the cinematography is is okay but i think the editing is is fairly strong in this movie too it really does have to you know first half of this movie is very predominantly rooted and entrenched in the human side of the story and that's always been the least interesting part of these this trilogy, and so they kind of get away from it in the next two movies. But I think it's a credit to the editing team that they're able to show as much human element as they do and not make it feel too long, not make it feel like it drags too much. It's edited and paced well. We're able to shift back and forth between Franco and Caesar uh, enough so that we're when when you know we get enough from them that their stories kind of mirror each other's and I think there's there's a lot of weight that was placed on the editing team and I think they did a good job of, of balancing this film uh, just enough so that we're never fully you know, maybe you're thinking like, oh, let's just get back to Caesar now. But I think they do enough, a good enough job to make sure that um, Franco and Lithgow and, and the human characters are given their own agency, are given their own story, and that that is cared about. That's a plot line that is, you know, meaningful to to what happens. So, yeah, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, runner up. Which means our winner, as I mentioned, is Hugo. Hugo, Best Special Effects 2011. Uh, this is such a... I really want to rewatch Hugo because it's Scorsese making a kid's movie, which in and of itself is kind of interesting. But he definitely approaches it with almost Spielbergian touch. And I think... You know, we're, we'll talk about a different Spielberg film uh, at some, later on in this episode, and I think you know Scorsese takes the best of that and makes great use of it in Hugo. It's a film that looks great. Uh, you know, the special effects are are strong. 
maybe not the best special effects of the year, but they, or, or visual effects, excuse me, of the year. But between them and the animation, the outstanding editing and cinematography that Scorsese brings, uh, it's just kind of a impossible to ignore film from a technical perspective, from a technical angle. And it, it's just a visual, visual treat. I think even when I don't fully... I'm not fully on board with a Scorsese film, and and I not to say I'm not on board with Hugo. I think Hugo is a very good movie, but I do think the technical aspects are its absolute strength. Its absolute strength, and uh, it, it they really do carry it almost the entire way <laughs> for this film. I I you know similarly looking to like. 2012's winner, which was Life of Pi, I think there's a lot of similarities there with Hugo. Um, maybe it's not it's not the same type of visuals, but uh, the the editing, the the presentation of the story to make it move at such a nice pace, you know, that's editing, and and to to give us these beautiful shots, the cinematography, the lighting, all that is is gorgeous, and then you get great visuals on top of that it's really hard to, de- to deny just how much of the complete picture i think hugo is in this category and i i don't think anything else uh earned this win except hugo so running those down five to one um drive harry potter and the deathly hallows part two rango rise of the planet of the apes and our winner hugo hugo that is that is the winner. Which brings us to the next category. Here we go. Next category is Best Original Score. Best Original Score. Five nominees, which are... Who are, I should say. Who are Patrick Doyle, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Cliff Martinez, Drive. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Howard Shore, Hugo, and Hans Zimmer, Rango. Uh, some great, great scores. Great scores. Starting with number five, we return to Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, so four, four films nominated in special effects also made it into score. Rise of the Planet of the Apes is one of them. And it is just... I think Patrick Doyle, you know, both of the other Planet of the Apes movies have good scores as well. Uh, I would probably go so far as to say that um, I, I think War has the best score of all of them, but it, it's tough to deny that you got to start somewhere, and I think Rise of the Planet of the Apes starts in a place for this franchise that you really have to feel on board. You really, you know, this is a reboot of a reboot. You know, we had the Tim Burton version, which didn't really work so well. And so similar to like the prequels of Star Wars, you had to earn that favor back, you know, when you revisit a franchise like this. And getting... Um, Patrick Doyle's score, which I don't think I would say it's it's absolutely iconic, 
like maybe some of these other scores on this list are, but it's a little more workmanlike. It doesn't kind of knock you over the head, uh, but it does what it does. It does incredibly well. It absolutely, you know, puts you in this world. And I think the biggest uh, strength that the score has is being able to flip back and forth between human and ape because of all three movies in this franchise rise is the one that has to do the most um heavy lifting with the human element of the story and similarly doyle's score has to you know account for that side too and it's it's i think it's so difficult and and so impressive when a score can you know, encompass so many different types of the story and, and sides of it and avenues and characters and such and make them all feel home and native in this in that movie. And Doyle, I think, does an exceptional job of, of making Caesar's storyline feel different from Franco's storyline, but also know that they're still working together and when they unite, you know, when they see each other on the bridge, when he visits him in the in the ape sanctuary, you know, these are things where these are moments where the scores kind of combine, the the separate character scores kind of combine and and drive home this connection that translates to the viewer. And I, I think, you know, like I said, it's not the flashiest thing, but it is absolutely one of the most effective ones. And that is why Patrick Doyle's Rise of the Planet of the Apes score makes it onto this list. Number four, number four, um, <clears throat> best original score, is the unique film uh, relative to the special effects category, which is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. We had the girl uh, in the spider's web, I think that's the title, come out this past year. Or was it this year? Jeez. It might have been this year. Um, came out like over... No, that it was, it was last fall, I believe. 2018. And it just doesn't... I don't know. That movie did not land well. Whereas... The first one, well, the first remake of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo with uh, Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig, uh, it just, it's, I talked so much about Refn and Drive and, and the aesthetic of that film. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo comes across very, very similarly. It is an aesthetic, it is an atmospheric film, uh, it is a sort of bleakly colored, but somehow like still feels vibrant. I, I, I think Reznor and Ross's score is is just such a... I don't know. I, I really like Trent Reznor. I, I think he's got a great ear um, for, for this kind of stuff. And I, I, I would hesitate... I don't know if I would necessarily go as far as to say his score and his work on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is his best film score, but it's absolutely in the conversation. And I think it, it just... These movies and, and the characters in them are, are very unique. And the score amplifies that so much. 
it, it showcases them as being not only unique but also necessary it showcases them as being the perfect person for these roles for these characters for these moments for these stories and that is tough to do i i think you know it it's a score that it's not like a welcoming score but it still manages to draw you in it kind of sucks you in against your will almost um i I don't i just i it's a it's just a, a movie that really relies on this sort of pulsing element and uh you know it's a movie that has its own sort of pulse running through it and i think the score complements that in in a lot of ways so Atticus Ross, Trent Reznor, The Girl with the Dragon Hat 2. That's my number four. Moving on. Moving on. Number three. After winning special effects, uh, Hugo, just shy uh, here at number three. Uh, Howard Shore, who, whose name I mostly recognize uh, for... Uh, I, let me make sure I'm getting this right before I... Um, I think, oh man, now I'm not so sure. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm thinking of a different sure. Could be, could be. Uh, I might be. Hmm. Never mind. We'll ignore that. Ignore that brief silent tangent um hugo it is a it's still weird to think about scorsese kid movie uh family movie maybe and howard shore's score for hugo is very upfront think that's the way I want to describe it it's very upfront it kind of it kind of like gets its hooks into you from the beginning and at that point you're kind of stuck knowing exactly what kind of movie you're in I would kind of relate it to in in La La Land we get that opening another day of sun song and that really does kind of jar you from the start and show you okay this is the movie you're watching this is this is what is coming next and i think the score for hugo does that this does the same thing you know it's not big and loud and bombastic but it is very specific it is very upfront about what is what this movie is because you know even knowing that you're going to see you know quote unquote family film from Scorsese, you might still, you know, I think he he gets he he. However, the however it happened, you know, Howard Shore, Scorsese, whatever, they get you to understand like this is exactly what that sounds like, and there's going to be a little bit of a, a little bit of Scorsese here and there, but it is definitely still you know a family film. This is not Taxi Driver, and Howard Shore 
somehow finds the happy medium between, you know, Scorsese's unique sensibilities and this genre, this this type of movie that he hasn't really made before, that he doesn't make most most of the time. And I think that that is, like, those are the things that I kind of, that impress me about a score. It's, it's finding those weird balances, finding those interesting um, levels that have to be bridged, that have to be crossed, that have to be met, and um, succeeding. And I think Howard Shore does that with what he does for the score for Hugo. So, that's number three, which means... Well, I guess it doesn't mean anything. Uh, which leads us to our runner-up. Runner-up for best original score is Hans Zimmer's score for Rango. Rango. Rango, again, falling a little short um, in this category. I'm, Like I said, I, I watched this recently. I think it is a, an exceptional film. And it... It, it it it's the score for Rango, you know it's it's a mostly a western, and the score reflects that it is, you know the score kind of lampoons westerns and and you know takes a lot of their sensibilities a lot of those, you know kind of acoustic elements and instruments and and puts those together and blends those together for this film and ultimately. Uh, you know that makes that that is what makes it feel authentic you know this is a film that the premise is absurd it is it is really ridiculous um you know a a, a lizard who somehow finds himself stuck in the middle of the desert he is an actor he takes on the role of a sheriff he suddenly be, has to become a sheriff and you know this isn't the newest plot idea in the world but for an animated kids movie, it is it is really strange and bizarre, and I think what Zimmer does with his score leans into that. He leans into the bizarreness, the the weirdness, the strangeness of this movie, of this premise, of these characters, and I think it, it settles down any of the thoughts that are like, "Why am I watching this?" Any of the thoughts that are like, "What is the point of this? What is happening? I don't understand," and you know, if you, if you're against the the idea of this, or if it feels weird or unusual, and I think Zimmer's score goes a long way to normalizing things because you can't even you know you close your eyes and it still sounds the way that it looks, it still sounds the way that it feels, and it all kind of works in conjunction with itself. It all kind of fits together neatly and nicely in this in this perfect little package and it's uh, the the two elements are just such a complement to each other and I think Hans Zimmer's score and and Hans Zimmer has always you know been very very good uh, at what he does and I think this is no exception to that um you know it's a Rango is a movie that sounds very very good and uh Hans Zimmer deserves this deserves this spot which does mean that our number one, I don't know if you can hear that alarm 
in the background. Maybe not. Hopefully not. Um, it's very faint for me. But which means the number one score, best original score, is Cliff Martinez Drive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the ways, sometimes, you know, I, I've talked about this in the past, and every time I really get into talking about the scores, mo- sometimes I have difficulty, you know, really remembering what's in them, really remembering. Uh, what they sound like, or even identifying, you know, the best ones from the worst ones. But one of the easiest ways to know that a score really did its job is I immediately want to download it. And that's not happened a lot. It maybe happened like two or three or four times um, ever for me. And Drive's score is absolutely one of those times. It was one of the first times, honestly, I loved the 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 music. I loved the sound of this movie. It is so you know, it has a lot of electronic going on in it. It like I said, it, it uh, with the effects, I think it, it really services reference film to to be this unique, um, interesting aesthetic that looks different than uh, other films of its type. That, that sounds different from other films of its type. And Martinez, just what he does in Drive, I think is so, so special and so, so impressive. Um, you know, I, I still have those, those that soundtrack, that score, both of them, and I still listen to them. And I still think that he, the, the meshing of those sounds with this movie don't, make the most sense when you think of them separately but watching and hearing them together is is it just it's it's so perfect and i think it it is the most important element of a score to complement the film to to elevate the film and to to you know there are times you know other categories like this like songs and performances there are times when those things can be incredible and they don't really help the film, or they don't, or the film is is not. And I think score is one of those categories where if your score isn't good, uh, or like if your movie isn't good, your score really can't be. I, I think that is a very tough um, connection to separate. And uh, Drive is a great film, and, and Cliff Martinez's score. Uh, is is a huge reason why and also a great score so five to one here we go patrick doyle for rise of the planet of the apes trent reznor and atticus ross for the girl with the dragon tattoo howard shore for hugo hans zimmer for rango and winning the circle of film award cliff martinez for drive number one that's where we're at that is What's going on? Let's uh, let's just stick with the technical technical categories, technical effects, technical things like that, and move on to tactile effects. Best tactile effects. So, just a refresher since it's been half an hour. Tactile effects refer to costume design, makeup, and hairstyling, production design, stunt work, and sound. Here are your nominees: Coriolanus. Drive, The Help, Hugo, 
and Midnight in Paris. Midnight in Paris. Number five, tactile effects, is Coriolanus. This is a movie I... <laughs> against all odds, I really love. It stars Gerard Butler and Rafe Fiennes. It is a Shakespeare adaptation set in modern times that uses the original language. And I just, I kind of loved it. I I really, really enjoyed Coriolanus. Um, this is the only time it's going to show up in the awards, but I, I think it is definitely worth checking out if you've never seen it, per, perhaps heard of it. Um, uh, but, but the strength of this movie is its tactile effects. I think from the makeup work and the, the, the visible physical effects that are used in it from, you know, the, there's a lot of war scenes in this movie. So the explosions, the, 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 the dirt, the soot, the blood, all that stuff all looks great. Um, the costumes aren't a huge element, uh, but when what costumes there are, you know, it's a modern set movie, so that's kind of tough to translate. But, you know, even the, the military uniforms and, and uh, what is it, Vanessa Redgrave, I think, uh, and, and there's a couple other characters, but... Even the clothing that they wear, it just looks right. It feels right. Uh, the production design is good. Um, it's good. I, I think there's a... Every once in a while, you get a sense of this is probably set in a stage. This is probably, you know, a backlot or something. But often, it does feel very real. It feels very authentic. It feels very true to what's happening. Uh, stunt work, lots of good stunt work in here, and, and sound I think is also really good. But I don't know. Like, none of these elements are, are you know singularly carrying this film to this this position. But I think all of them in conjunction with each other do a good job of of recognizing and elevating a film that doesn't feel like it should work, doesn't feel like it belongs in any category of best anything, and yet. It is kind of it is the commitment to this aesthetic, to this world, to these these this story that from from the from a tactile perspective that I think puts it over the top. Um, it's a very good looking film. It sounds good, uh, and it is convincing. It is convincing in what is it is portraying. Whether that's war, whether that's you know fighting and, and dialogue and. Um, and so much more. Uh, I think it does a great job. Does a great job. So that's number five, Coriolanus. Coriolanus, number five. Number four is the help. Uh, the help is hmm, um, a movie I really enjoyed when I first watched it, and it's been. If anyone's really kept up with just the response to this movie and the reaction that viewers and fans have had, there's been this sort of rumbling about like, oh, it's it's starting to get a little bit of, especially with Green Book winning Best Picture, there's 
you know, backlash happening and rippling through a lot of movies that people have enjoyed and liked and so on. And uh, The Help is one I definitely feel the need to rewatch and better acquaint myself with uh, to see if those initial uh, feelings are still there. But that aside, uh, that really doesn't have any bearing on its tactile effects, which mostly get in through costumes, uh, makeup, and hairstyling. Those are exceptional in The Help. It's a period piece, period clothing. It is a film that feels, you know, so, so just just really of its period and of its of its uh of its time and i i say that with all due all respect and, and all you know compliment because it's not it's, people don't say that uh respect whatever uh, it, it 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 is a successful film in that it does feel very vibrant, maybe a little too vibrant if we're going back this many decades, but the the authenticity and excitement within the clothing, within the hairstyling, within the makeup, and that, you know, even some of the production as well, really does a great job of grounding this film, despite at times it's kind of over-the-top nature, it's over-the-top feelings, it's over-the-top uh, sensibilities, and yeah it it's a good looking film it's a really really well made technical physical element film and uh yeah more more than earns this spot in my opinion number three number three so that's number four the help number three um one of two films that has been in uh every single category we've talked about so far and that is hugo Hugo comes in at number three here. Uh, so, best tactile effects. Obviously, Hugo, a special effects dream. But it, as well, is a period piece. Uh, it has outstanding production. Perhaps produ- production is likely the best element um, going in this of, of this category that it has for it. Its sound is great. It you know, makeup and hairstyling is also solid. Um, stunt work, uh, there's not as much of that as there will be in uh, the film, the next film above this. But yeah, uh, it, it does all these things really, really well. And um, man, it, you know, this far, unlike special effects, I think Hugo really had a, a decent amount of space separating it from the rest of the pack to win that award. I think the top three in this category of tactile are, are almost, almost interchangeable. Uh, Hugo is a great-looking film, visually, physically, tactile, special, and I, I think I, I think the biggest reason it doesn't eke out uh, second or even first in this category is I think um, the costume design is good, not great. I think the the stunt work isn't there, but it's not really there for the winner of this category either. And 
The makeup and hairstyling isn't that, doesn't stand out that much to me, which it will going forward. So we'll get there. But number three, Hugo. Number two, tactile effects, runner up is Drive. Um, Drive and Hugo both nominated for all three of these categories. Uh, man, costume design is fine. You know, there aren't a ton in Drive. It is a modern set film, so it's not as important. Uh, it's a lot harder to have great costume design when your film set in modern times. Stunt work, though. Great stunt work here in Drive. Uh, stunt driving, stunt whatever. The sound in Drive, as I've kind of talked about when we talked about the score, that same, those same reasons, that same stuff leaks into the sound effects and the sound editing and the sound mixing for Drive as well. Uh, production design, great. It looks amazing. Um, whether you're in the hotel, which I love the hotel that the, the most, that so much of this movie takes place in, uh, whether you're at um, Albert Brooks, like little restaurant thing, I, I think... Both of those and all the other locations that the movie takes place in are, are really well scouted, really well designed, and really well laid out. Uh, makeup and hairstyling. Again, uh, it's good, but it's not anything exceptional in this movie. I think costumes, makeup, and hairstyling are what hold this back from making it all the way to the top. Uh, and otherwise, you know... It's it's a so so close between all these these three movies, um, which means our winner, with Drive as number two runner up, best tactile effects for 2011 is Midnight in Paris. Uh, I perhaps the only good Woody Allen movie in the last. Uh, who knows? Maybe that's not true. He did Blue Jasmine. Um, well he's had a lot more misses than hits. And um, Midnight in Paris, I think, is definitely a hit. It The conceit really lends itself to this category so well of, you know, Owen Wilson going back in time, uh, revisiting and, and, re and uniting with these, you know, long-dead artists, characters, writers, and, and their wives and everything. Um, you know, that thing. But... Costumes, exceptional. Makeup, hairstyling, great. The production design in this is fantastic. There's really no stunt work um, that I can remember. I think there's like a brawl at one point, if I'm remembering correctly, but I, there's very little stunt work. Uh, and the sound is good. Sound is very good. Uh, you know, it has to be to kind of give you these two, all these separate atmospheres that take place in Midnight in Paris. And... I think it does so very, very effectively. It's a movie that's obviously, you know, Woody Allen, uh, whatever, <laughs> as a director, as a writer, is very focused on on interactions, character interactions, dialogue, um, the screenplay, the that kind of si that kind of stuff. And I think Midnight in Paris is deceptively very, very attuned to the time period that it takes place in both both time periods that it takes place in the location it's set in i mean it's a gorgeous location it's gorgeous everything um you have these characters who and actors who are portraying characters who are decades old and they have relatively small amount of screen time to to give them a big personality to to make them believable and 
I think that a lot of that becomes exponentially more difficult when they don't have the appropriate accoutrement to to pull off such a I don't know pulling the wool over your eyes in that amount of that way of of being these people of of making them that believable and uh, I I think <clears throat> that's why that is why tactile effect winner midnight in Paris running down the five top five again five to one uh, Coriolanus the help Hugo drive and midnight in Paris best tactile effects in twenty. 11 all right so got most of the the technical stuff out of the way early this time around i try to i don't always do the same order of awards sometimes i generally try to avoid having the same movie win twice in a row if i can um without sacrificing you know a flow next category we have best screenplay best screenplay and the nominees are, here we go, <clears throat> Asgar Farhadi, A Separation, Abby Morgan and Steve McQueen, Shame, Will Riser, 50-50, Celine Sciamma, Tomboy, and Lynn Shelton, Your Sister's Sister. I think I'm saying Sciamma, Celine Sciamma, Sciamma, right, I might have to look at that um, how easy is this it's probably gonna be loud Celine Siema Siema okay Siema Celine Siema okay uh, number five <laughs> uh, number five best screenplay best screenplay is Lynn Shelton for Your Sister's Sister. Your Sister's Sister, indie, mumblecore kind of movie um, that I really uh, responded to. I think it's got some pretty strong performances from the three main characters, uh, Mark Duplass, Emily Blunt, and Rosemary DeWitt. Um... And, you know, it's tough with these mumblecore movies to, you know, you there's such an improv element to them, style, whatever, that no matter how, you, you can never really know how much of it's on the page, how much of it is is these actors creating it. I know Duplass, Mark Duplass is definitely um, no stranger to improv, but you look at Emily Blunt, you look at Rosemary DeWitt, and I'm not sure that they're that's quite in their wheelhouse enough. So I, I don't know if some of the, you know, if, if there's an imbalance there between some of the main actors, how much room and how much rope are they really given to, to um, explore those elements of, of their characters. And I think uh, your sister's sister, regardless of how much is improv, I think there's something so crucial to a story that is purely human um and then there's a couple of them on this list you know 50 50 a separation uh tomboy shame there's a reason these five movies are all best screenplay nominations for me because my my i i love in a screenplay you know 
human drama is is so difficult i think to convey aptly in a movie you end up with uh you know you you can't let it get too stilted you can't let it get too melodramatic um and when you're trying to play various characters off each other without it being over the top without it being too subdued it's it's a really fine line to walk uh it's really dependent on dialogue you know there's no action in this movie there's really no action in any of these five movies to be honest um and so you are completely reliant on your dialogue your stage directions within the screenplay your your narrative flow your plot uh, and that is so so key uh, to and and so much weight and pressure on on the writer, the screenwriter. Um, so your sister's sister follows a a very straightforward but complicated story, uh, and the more levels that are added to the drama, the more tightly written this this movie has to be. Because it is so easy to veer into, um, you know, just a silly love triangle story. And, and, you know, we've seen that dozens and dozens and dozens of times. It's in, you know, half of, you know, 20 movies every year or so, it seems like. Uh, but what Lynn Shelton is able to do <clears throat> in Your Sister's Sister is is really, really special. She's crafted, you know, Mark Duplass is not, a like... A big name actor he doesn't you know he doesn't really have a lot of accolades he doesn't get you know he's not an oscar nominee or anything like that um and the same at least at the, especially at the time the same can be said for emily blunt and rosemary dewitt to a, to a certain degree as well and yet the 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 writing in this movie is is so natural and authentic that it completely translates these these actors into these people uh it makes them who they are like i've seen all three of them in various other roles and they they whether or not they're able to to embody these other characters as well uh is is questionable but in your sister sister i think they all do such a perfect job of of just being who these people are that even if some of these lines were improved it, it I think that stems from how well-defined and how well-attuned the characters and actors are together through the writing, through the dialogue, through the story. And that is that is the thing. That is the point. That is what the writing is about. It is creating these um, dependent, codependent relationships between actor-character, between actor-writer, between... Um, plot and between dialogue and and making them all flow and fit together really well and i think lynn shelton uh does a beautiful job with that in your sister's sister so that is number five lynn shelton your sister's sister number four number four is tomboy with the aforementioned celine siema celine siema whatever tomboy is a foreign language film um, that i particularly like a bit it is the basic plot uh if you haven't heard of it don't know what it is um a young oh boy now 
I just I was just like doing research for this like yesterday and now I'm getting all confused. Um <laughs> a young girl boy girl girl a young girl <laughs> silly a young girl moves to a new place and is mistaken for a boy because of the tomboyish clothing she's wearing. She's like uh, 10 or 11, 12 maybe. Like right around that like end of the prepubescent uh, age. And she is happy as, you know, being thought of as a boy. And the movie kind of progresses from there as people begin to, you know, some people eventually find out the truth and uh, she goes by a different name and um, eventually, you know, things kind of boil to the surface and then there's a fallout and that's kind of uh, the basic plot of Tomboy, which it's, it's, it's such a beautiful movie in how delicate but also vulnerable it is with this topic uh, because I think a lot of movies would either go overboard trying to be hypersensitive about this issue and, and you know, about gender identity and, and how that factors into young kids and, and what they think about. And, you know, some of them are, are very okay with it and some of them are very not. And it's, you know, part of that is just how they were raised, part of that is who they are and, and what they're familiar with and what they know and it kind of all, there's a lot of lot of landmines to, to, land, to, to step on in a movie like this and I think um, Siyama is able to navigate those so deftly, uh, you know, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable how <clears throat> this, this movie uh, makes, I'm not sure if uh, I can remember the name um, of the character, but makes makes the girl slash tomboy able to to present herself uh, and and understand herself throughout the course of this movie. You know, like that is kind of the point. It is understanding who she is, what she identifies as, what she is comfortable wearing, acting like, talking like, looking like, and the the struggle mostly is from how much of this movie is just kids. It's it's predominantly just kids on screen, just kids talking, just kids interacting, whether it's uh the the main character and her younger sister, whether it's her and her friends, her, you know, at school, her uh, playing. It's a lot of kids interacting. And as, you know, if you've seen movies with kid actors, there are some real bad ones. And I think a, a lot of that is the direction that they are given when they are performing and when they are on screen. But you have to also give credit to the writing and making that writing palatable for them, understanding that it is being written for child actors, for them to be able to understand what is being asked of them, for them to be able to understand, okay, what is this character? Explain this to me. And I think uh, Siyama, as both writer and director of Tomboy, uh, really does excel 
in working with them and creating this environment uh, for where she can get the best out of all of them. I think they are all very strong performers across the board and writing these moments and and making them feel human and not melodramatic making them feel human and not um just kind of hit pieces against uh various types of people who either object or support blindly or you know whatever side of the fence you want to call it making this movie walk that line between them is 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 very very skillful and i, I think Celine Sciamma is is very very uh, successful in in with Tomboy and with the writing of Tomboy. So number four, Tomboy, Celine Sciamma. Number three <clears throat> uh, is a, a, a writer director that I am very fond of uh, and a partner of his, um, writing partner of his, Abby Morgan and Steve McQueen for Shame. I'm a huge fan of Steve McQueen, whether it's Widows, Shame, Hunger, 12 Years a Slave. I think he, he's had an incredible career so far and, and is only, sky's the limit, honestly. Uh, Shame is a, a very simple movie, I think, relative to, say, the socio-political elements going on in Widows relative to the racial dynamics happening in 12 Years a Slave. I think Shame is is a much more straightforward and simple movie. Uh, and so when you're making a movie that is, you know, say something like 127 hours, which is 85% just James Franco stuck in a, you know, trapped in, in on a hike, it's not, a, Shame is not to that degree, but there is so much so much of that movie of this movie is focused on uh Michael Fassbender his character and and how he deals with um sexual obsession and, and and how he relates to that and how it kind of takes over him and i think making this story and and adding in <clears throat> um Carrie Mulligan's character giving her relationship with Fassbender so much depth uh you know if you're focusing on one element, it really allows the screenplay to expand and stretch out um, some of the finer details. And I think that is where this the screenplay thrives, is on these smaller details that it's able to completely get lost in, in a good way, in, an, in a good way. Um, and I, I think both you know, Fassbender and Carrie Mulligan are, are so up to the task of uh, relishing in, in all that's being written for them and it's really a treat to see all of these elements sort of just coalesce together in this in the nicest way possible. Um, so I big fan of of shame. Uh, really good movie, really great movie. And I think the writing in it is superb. It is, you know, you you think of a movie that's about sex addiction, and there are a lot of ways to make that movie. And Steve McQueen just just knows how to do it the best way possible and to make it the most effective, uh, accurate, and um, attuned to to, to what that sort of a story requires to come across as effective. Uh, So shame, 
from Abby Morgan and Steve McQueen. Number three. Number three. Number two, the runner-up for Best Screenplay 2011 is 50-50, Will Riser. 50-50 is, uh, if you don't know what it's about, it's a very straightforward film in many aspects. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a 27-year-old who is diagnosed with cancer, and the title comes from the fact that he is given a 50-50 chance uh, to live. Uh, He needs to undergo surgery, and there's no more guarantee than a coin flip, uh, which is a terrifying, terrifying proposition. And so he, along with his best friend, Seth Rogen, his girlfriend, Bryce Dallas Howard, his therapist, Anna Kendrick, his mother, Angelica Houston, uh, and then some cancer friends he meets along the way, Philip Baker Hall, among others. Uh, You know, he just... Life, he he just has to find a way to to keep his head up and to, to push through from one moment to the next. And that is a daunting proposition, right? Like, that is, it's just horrific to imagine at such a young age that a coin flip decision um, changes whether you live or die. And because, I don't, I don't want to say that, like, the stakes are so high, but because the stakes are so blatant, I guess is a better way to describe them, it makes them it makes the movie require, in my opinion, a much more um, delicate approach. I thought anyway, because I think what Will Riser does in Fifty Fifty is a very sledgehammer type approach to this type of a movie, and if I you know knowing that given the thought given the premise given the 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 plot would make me fairly apprehensive about the movie being successful being good being um appropriate for the subject matter making it work and yet i really feel like he he somehow knocks it out of the park i think um you know great performances pretty much all around uh and it, it, it you know it, it approaches the issue of cancer and this you know 50/50 fate with just 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 blunt force just blunt force uh and and that is interesting uh, you know, you have scenes where characters are just yelling at Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, you know, he's he he himself, I think, his character plays this movie fairly straight. He feels like someone who is in a cancer drama. But everyone around him um, has these moments, has these episodes where they are far more animated than you would expect. Where they, you know, they are just acting in ways that are very abnormal you know whether it's Bryce Dallas Howard uh you know 
complaining to the guy with cancer how hard it is for her, whether it's Seth Rogen um, going on and on about getting laid, about Joseph Gordon-Levitt needing to get laid, about using his cancer to get laid. Um, There are multiple times where uh, Seth Rogen references how awkward a situation is in this movie. Uh, So, like, there's all these different elements like that that really don't, at first glance, feel like they're in the right place. They they feel like they're home in this movie, and yet I really do believe that they are. I think Rule Riser, the writing for this, is so smart and so perfect that he's able to present this, you know, dramatic, sad, um, you know, traumatic film in a way that feels fresh, that feels real, that feels like okay, yeah, like, everyone wouldn't just immediately, you know, start mourning you, uh, you know, and everyone wouldn't start, you know, quieting down when you come around. It, it, you know, things are not like that. And I think that my, 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 um, uh, retroactive apprehension about making the movie that way stems from how cultured it is that, you know, when someone undergoes a situation like that when someone becomes um quote-unquote like on death's door for any sense in any way you you get careful you get cautious and there's a reason for that but you don't have like it's it's about understanding these characters and understanding the people and knowing what they need what they desire what they require of you in that moment and will riser understands these characters he writes them so well to the point where you know there are multiple scenes in that movie in this movie where you just can't help but but feel for everyone for various reasons uh you know one of my favorite seth rogan performances in is in this movie um perhaps second only to to um steve jobs uh anna kendrick is great Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fantastic. It really is um, quite quite special what what Riser is able to pull off with 50-50 and, and his approach to the cancer drama. So number two, runner-up, is Will Riser's 50-50. Which means, which means our winner is Asghar Farhadi's A Separation. I... <laughs> I don't know what really to talk, say about a separation. It is an incredible movie. I am a huge, huge, huge fan of Asghar Farhadi. Uh, the, there's not much to say. It's it's Farhadi's strength, and it always has been this: is he takes a a situation, a scenario that is so laced with melodrama, it feels completely plucked right out of a soap opera, and he's still able to present it as a, a compelling, as a provoking, as a, as a taut, tension-filled uh, drama that, that never once veers into, oh, come on, really? Or, you know, never, you know, becomes this, this just, just, a, just a caricature of itself. And he is so, so good at writing these characters, at writing these words, at making these dialogue exchanges feel potent 
and and powerful and and you know he's another you know another writer director uh like Celine Sciamma and just just the combination of all those elements uh what he's able to get out of his actors it all stems back at the writing and I think his movies are so well written that it's it's kind of overwhelming uh I know watching a separation for me for the first time was was really eye-opening um and uh, I highly encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to check it out. It is a uh, one best foreign language film at the Oscars that year. It is it is truly a marvel, and uh, the writing is is perhaps the biggest biggest element to that. So five to one. Here we go. Your sister's sister from Lynn Shelton, Tomboy from Celine Sciamma, Shame from Abby Morgan and Steve McQueen. 50-50 from Will Riser and best screenplay from 2011, Asghar Farhadi's A Separation. As we enter the halfway point, this is the fifth category out of ten. Uh, this is best supporting performance. Uh, for those who haven't watched, haven't listened uh, to some of the more recent Circle Film Award episodes, I originally did have both lead and supporting performance categories separated into male and female that has since changed they are all lumped together because humans uh so the nominees for best supporting performance in 2011 are <clears throat> albert brooks drive rose marie dewitt your sister's sister jean disson tomboy jan jean disson serena farhadi a Separation, Carrie Mulligan, Drive, Carrie Mulligan, Shame, Nick Nolte, Warrior, Gary Oldman, Kung Fu Panda 2, Seth Rogen, 50-50, and Andy Serkis, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So a lot, a lot to parse in that list there, uh, beyond uh, the voice acting from Gary Oldman, uh, the motion capture from Andy Circus, two nominations for Carrie Mulligan, two nominations for Drive, but we're going through this ten to ten to one. So we're going to start with number ten, which is Gene Disson uh, from Tomboy. And I talked about Tomboy already in the screenplay section. Uh, Gene Disson, uh, she is the best friend. I'm not mistaken. Let me just double check this so I get it right. Um, she plays the character of Lisa in Tomboy. And it's really, it's it's weird because when I look at the cast list, there's a character in the movie named Gene, but that's not who Gene plays. Uh, but uh, Gene Disson is Lisa. She is the best friend, friend of, of Lore or Mikkel, uh, who is the main character of Tomboy. And she... It's, it's so fascinating, these, these performances these kids give, because I, I, would, I barely expect most of them to even recognize and understand the themes and the underlying messages uh, going on in a movie like this. 
And I, maybe that's not giving them enough credit, maybe. But there's so, there's so many layers going on. And it is incredibly impressive that, and I think mostly it's, it's Gene Disson and, and Zoe Haran, who, who plays the main character, um, that really excel uh, in this in this environment um, because their performances are, are, you know, talking about Gene Disney's performance, her performance is so much more than just, you know, I'm a 10 year old girl and I'd like to play outside. You know, she has to, she goes through this movie. She befriends Mikael, uh, learns to, learns who he is, uh, she is, and has to kind of wrestle with those things and, and, and understand what that means and, and how that works for them. And that is a lot of pressure uh, to put on a young actor. And Gene Disson does a great job of, of living up to that pressure, of, of rising to the occasion, of being that multi-layered, multi-faceted performer. And, you know, it's, it's something that would even be impressive in a 20, 30, 40 year old, and she's doing it around the age of 10, you know, it is, it is pretty, pretty, pretty damn, um, stellar. Um, she is really only in this and, uh, like two other movies. So seems like the career for Jean Disson did not, pan out or you know who knows what the intention was but uh, it's a shame because I, I think she does really does give a great performance in tomboy and uh, deserves the the accolade deserves the, the 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 praise for what she's able to bring to this character of lisa uh, so that is number 10 from tomboy gene disson number nine <clears throat> is I think we're going from the youngest, uh, maybe not, we'll have to see, I have to see uh, Serena Farhadi, going from the youngest to the oldest in Nick Nolte from Warrior. If you've seen Warrior, uh, it is Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton who are both in very different points in their life. They're brothers, Nick Nolte plays their dad. They enter this MMA fighting tournament for money and... um, crazy things ensue. Nick Nolte is uh, their father. Tom Hardy's character is sort of basically take, the only one taking care of him. And he is a drunk. He is a... He's in a bad place. He's in a bad place. And Nick Nolte's gravelly voice is not one I'm particularly fond of. I, I generally don't enjoy seeing him in a movie for that exact reason like oh my goodness i have to pay like three times as much attention just so i can make out what words he's saying um when he like mumbles through the rock gravel that's in his mouth but uh in warrior he one has a reason to be so mumbly and gravelly but two i think does a good job of uh avoiding being too um difficult to to understand and and three is doing a lot of physical performance in this role uh you know it's a lot of you know just being physically distraught physically drunk physically um incapable of of 
continuing in, in life. And, you know, he's forced to rely on Tom Hardy again and again and again. And I think he's able to rise to that occasion. He's able to just, you know, I, I don't know how... <laughs> Maybe it's the simple case that, you know, he's not so far separated from the character he's playing, but he really does feel at home in this role, in this, you know, drunken father, um, barely able to, you know, stand up straight, uh, but still, uh, you know, has one, at least Tom Hardy to take care of him and you know, you also get a lot of layers to that, you know, weighing the, the, the guilt of him, you know, kind of holding back his son and seeing both of his kids in this fighting tournament and, and understanding, like, why they're there and his role and what brought them to that point. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on for Nolte's character, and, and I think he does a great job of balancing them with uh, being that gruff, like, yelling, angry side of him with a more subdued and um, complacent and and um contrite uh element as as the movie kind of wears on so i i was really impressed by nick nolte and warrior and i think he does does a fantastic job in it number eight number eight is seth rogan from 50 50 seth rogan from 50 50 i talked about 50 50 already uh so Seth Rogen, friend of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's there to support him, he's there to help him, he's there to uh, use him sometimes. Uh, you know, he's he can be a selfish guy, but he does support JGL, and he, he, do, he is there for him, and he does care. And he has some of those, you know, typical Seth Rogen comedy elements to this character, but there's a lot more going on here. Um, it's a lot more vulnerable. He's a lot more, uh, I don't know. And, and maybe it's just like written better as a character, but you're able to see a lot, a lot, a lot of sides to, to him. And he's able to give a little more to this performance than I think he really does in any of his comedic roles, uh, which is good because I think the role kind of demands it. And he's not necessarily the first choice for a movie like this. Or maybe he was, I don't know. Uh, but he really does fit quite well. Um, he has great chemistry with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, with Anna Kendrick, with Angelica Houston, with all the other characters in the movie. Uh, if there's anything I could really complain about, it's maybe they give his character one or two too many lines and, and you know jokes that don't need to be in the movie. But I think the delivery that... Rogan has here is is pretty pitch perfect um and he every once in a while really does kind of steal the show uh not a ton and he doesn't steal the movie but every once in a while he'll steal a scene uh and I I think that is a testament to uh, just his his charisma and what he's bringing to the table here uh so I really like Seth Rogan in this I think he he really I really want him to do more roles like these, like this, like Steve Jobs, and, and really branch out deeper into the dramatic territory. But, you know, he's he's good in comedies, and I accept that. So, number eight from 5050 is Seth Rogen. Number seven 
Number seven is from Drive, Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan in Drive is, she had a great year, obviously. Two nominations, both in the supporting category. Uh, she, in, in Drive, she plays the neighbor to uh, Ryan Gosling's character. And her husband, boyfriend, husband, um, Oscar Isaac, is in prison um, for most of the movie. And so Gosling, you know, comes in, checks up on her, and meets her, and gets to know her, and they have this little thing together. And it's, you know, at points he protects her, and, like, she kind of gets embroiled in some of his crazy, uh, crazy stuff. But, man, this is a quiet movie. Outside of Albert Brooks, who we'll get to eventually, it's a very quiet movie. Um, There isn't a ton of dialogue. It's very short snappy back and forths when there is any Um, but it's a lot of longing looks it's a lot of physical emotion on faces and Carrie Mulligan is outstanding at that she is she is really really fantastic um, in in faith in her facial portrayals and and what she's able to show uh, in a movie and uh that is all that is predominantly what drive asks from her and she she is giving it back in spades um multiple sequences and scenes where i think she just does such a good job of showing so much more than she's saying in the movie and that is that's it's really difficult and she she makes it seem incredibly easy so i, I think she's great in drive and uh, she's number seven in 2011. That is Carrie Mulligan. Number six, we move over to Gary Oldman in Kung Fu Panda 2. Um, <laughs> this might seem uh, a little out there, but if you haven't seen Kung Fu Panda 2, or if you haven't seen it in quite a while, I really encourage you to check it out again, or maybe look up some clips. Gary Oldman voices uh, the villain. Oh boy, I'm not going to remember the name of the villain. Let's see here. Shen? Oh, it's not coming to me. Um, Seth Rogen is in this too. Uh, Why is he not like one of the first five P faces attributed to this movie? I don't understand. Yes, there he is. Lord Shen. Gary Oldman, Lord Shen. Um, he is a peacock, peafowl. And he is so on fire, I think, in this role. You know, I, I think Gary Oldman is a fantastic actor. But we've seen, and I've seen him... I think if you're a fan of his, you've probably seen him in a wide variety of roles. He's kind of chameleon. He, he, you know, whether it's Batman or Sid and Nancy or, you know, Leon the Professional, whatever, Tinker Tailor Soldier's by, he can play a lot of different roles. And in Kung Fu Panda 2, he is this kind of maniacal villain who we kind of get introduced to him as, you know, he's definitely got the Kung Fu as the movie kind of requires, but he also is well aware that he is not the best at it, 
which is interesting because the first movie is about Poe defending against, you know, becoming a kung fu master, become, you know, becoming the dragon warrior. And you would expect in the sequel that he would go up against some even more formidable foe from a kung fu perspective. And that's not what happens. Uh, Shen is skilled, certainly. But one of his first scenes is shown where he's not skilled enough. And so instead, Shen relies on weaponry, relies on underhanded tricks, relies on um, firepower outside of kung fu ability. And Gary Oldman brings such a great voice to this role because you do get to see him kind of assess all of these situations he finds himself in. He's very methodical. He is very straightforward, but he has bursts of energy, bursts of anger. And I think he just fits this mo- this movie, this role so perfectly and-, and providing such a unique and unorthodox villain for this sequel um, that I-, I was just kind of impressed and floored by how 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 solid and strong his performance was from a vocal perspective um uh you know he's he's playing this very unique character and and playing it in a way that feels sinister and and feels you know he's it's one of those performances where like sometimes the voice is so perfect that you question who it is, even though you know who it is. And I think Gary Oldman is able to embody Lord Shen so much that every once in a while you you, you kind of slip out and, and forget that this is Gary Oldman's voice. It does not sound like him a lot. And that is that is the hallmark, right? Is is becoming the character, becoming who you're voicing. And I, I absolutely, absolutely think Gary Oldman does that with Lord Shen in Kung Fu Panda 2. My number six number six number five is uh, from your sister's sister and that is rosemary do it talked about her talked about the movie a little bit um she plays i'm remembering correctly emily blunt's sister who emily blunt tells mark duplass hey look Go to the lake cabin or whatever thing it is. Um, you need some time to unwind, to rest, to get clear head about you know all this stuff. And he gets there, and Rosemary DeWitt is already there. Um, and they meet, or not not for the first time, but they're not super familiar with each other. And they kind of strike up this relationship, this not you know romantic relationship necessarily, but just I don't know. They they strike up a repertoire. They 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 become familiar with each other and, and closer over the next, like, day or two uh, until Emily Blunt shows up. And Rosemary DeWitt is kind of caught between... I mean, I guess all three of them end up really being caught between the other two. But And, and so, like, I really... I think all of them give really good performances. But I, I really was impressed with Rosemary DeWitt because she is the one... She has so much she and mark duplass at least have so much familiarity with emily blunt's character but not really with each other until this time they spend together at this cabin and 
I think she just does such a better job than him and, and that uh, at really showing the change over time of how the dynamic shifts as she learns more about him, as Emily Blunt enters the picture, as she's juggling her sister and this guy that she's kind of into, maybe not into, but knows her sister's into, but they've been together now for however long and, and grown accustomed to each other and grown closer to each other in that time. It's it's a really interesting social dynamic, and I think of the three, Rosemary DeWitt really plays it the best. She's able to be um, fun, boisterous, laughing early in the movie. Uh, when the dynamic shifts, she's able to shift with it to solemn, to melancholy, to supportive, to um, proactive, to reactive. To, to you know, mending fences, to to crossing bridges, to fix, you know whatever it is, uh, she's able to fit all those roles throughout the film, and I think that is what elevates her, especially above her castmates, who are also very very good, but not quite as good as Rosemary Dewitt, and it's you know it what it's what gets her to fifth on this list. I think she's she's pretty special in this movie and very very effective at kind of keeping the movie all tied together because I think there's a point where it shifts to being predominantly about Mark Duplass and and Emily Blunt's characters but Rosemary DeWitt is kind of still that glue that they both keep coming back to and you have to be very strong to hold up a movie like that in that position and she absolutely is absolutely is so for me number five rosemary dewitt in your sister's sister number four is from a separation serena farhadi serena farhadi she is the daughter of the main couple in A Separation. And her role is fairly small. Maybe the smallest of the list of names on this... Or of, of the list of, of people on this category. Um, perhaps. perhaps. Probably between her and Gary Oldman. Maybe. Not sure. Uh, But she plays a very pivotal role in a separation. There's a lot of dynamics going on in the movie. Uh, We will talk about it later, and I'll probably go into more detail as as we get deeper into the movie or into the episode. But um, Serena Farhadi is Asghar Farhadi, same name. Uh, So, you know, you don't... if I if I didn't know better, I would even even you know heading into the movie. If I didn't you know if I find out that the next Steven Spielberg movie has you know Jenny Spielberg in it as some kid, you know, and like scratching your scratch your chin a little bit, like hmm, you know, how much of this is nepotism, you know, and this a separation was the first Asgard for Hadi film I've se- I saw. And I didn't know, I mean, I wasn't looking at the cast list before I watched it, but you, you go into a, a movie blind like that, and you could t- 
totally overestimate or underestimate just why a, someone's daughter, son, husband, wife, mother, father is in a movie like this. And you see Serena Farhadi and man, it, it, the the... <laughs> This is not a movie, this is not a role that you choose to do or or accept to do if you're not completely committed to, to performing, to acting. Because she I mean, all the characters in a separation go through so much in these movie in this movie. There are so many dynamics, there are so many relationships torn and mended and and broken. Uh, there are characters whose lives are shattered, and Serena Farhadi's character is perhaps not the most affected in in the movie, but is the one that the movie movie's final shot lands on, because she is asked to choose between her mother and her father for custody at the end of this movie, and that is, you know, you have this whole sequence leading up to that point, and trying to wrap your head around like how do you make a decision like that and i you know if you've if you're a child of divorce which i'm not so i I don't know what this is like but i'm sure having seen many movies and tv shows where this divorce happens and separations sometimes it's very easy to know i want to be with that one but this movie does not make it easy this movie presents it as very straightforward that these are both both of these parents are absolutely in love with their daughter and and love her to death would do so much for her and how that that just making a decision like that is is i mean it's impossible and for her to be put in this situation this performance that she has to give is heartbreaking throughout so much of it watching all these different permutations of her parents dealing with different outside elements and and external stimuli and somehow against all odds she ends up as the sort of rock for them she is the station stationary one she is the unmoving one and then to get to the end of this movie and realize that she will only be able to continue to act as the rock for one of the two parents moving forward at the end end of these events is a lot like that's so (laughs) that's shitty um you can't you have to like you got the to comprehend that it's it's a it's so much to to take in um because there's just every element of this movie just has ripple effects throughout the rest of it throughout all the other characters and um Serena Farhadi's character, who isn't ever really directly involved with what's happening, experiences ripple effects from everything. She is just sort of pushed back and forth and pulled one way and the other constantly throughout this movie. And it is pretty distressing. And for her to be as strong as she is and present this character who believably is this strong, who believably can endure this level of of, um, stress and and of trauma, of of drama, is is really 
fascinating. You know, she's 12, 13 years old in this movie. Uh, at least uh, Serena Farhadi is. I don't know if the character she's playing is, but, it, it, you know, I, I'm just endlessly impressed. And I, I think, I, I don't feel as though I, I'm disproportionately impressed um, to the extent where, you know, somebody younger gets added points for being young as far as the performances are, are considered, whether that's Gene Disson or Serena Farhadi. But it is absolutely still, I, I think it just puts the, the imp- how impressed you are into perspective. Um, you know, you don't have to add extra points because she's was 10, 12, 11. Um, but you do have to ele- factor in like, oh, and she's that? Like, man, like, it makes it easier, I think, to to understand the level of skill involved and required for a role like this, because it's it's a lot of work, and 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 I think she's Asghar Friday's daughter. Her dad does not make it easy on her. She is she is constantly forced to, you know, be in these very distressing moments in this movie and she comes through she is resolute she is strong-willed she is you know able to push against these outside oppressive walls that sort of trap this movie and she's one of the few characters able to do that and and it takes a very skilled performer to make this role believably this perhaps the strongest in the movie so serena farhadi number four best supporting performance from a separation number three best supporting actor 2011 uh someone who has been here twice before for the same role and that is andy circus in rise of the planet of the apes for the character of caesar um <clears throat> Two nominations prior to this one for the same role, both uh, in the lead category, but he is a supporting character in this movie. Uh, you know, I think the movie follows James Franco, and Circus is definitely a major, major character, but he is absolutely a supporting, supporting role. And I think there's two two big moments in this movie that show how just kind of like predict the path of this franchise and and how great circus ultimately is down the line and the first of those is the 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 get your hands off me you damn dirty ape line to which caesar for the first time in the movie speaks english and yells no back at him and that is Oh man, it is it is such a chilling moment. I loved it so much and that line delivery followed by, you know, the the sort of power that Caesar inherits and and takes in that moment and you can see it in his body, you can see it in his face uh and and through Andy Circus and and what he's doing. And as and from that point in the movie on, he is just a force to be reckoned with. From from there to to swinging through the trees, 
um, in San Francisco to, uh, to, you know, on the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, it's, it's just all of it kind of compounds upon itself and you just, you see so much human emotion in Caesar. You see this, this rage that he has dealt with, that he has suffered. You see the loss that he feels watching this, his fellow apes gunned down or, or killed in front of him. And it's, it's truly, truly, uh, just so impressive what Andy Serkis has done with this character, and I think he he really ex- ascends to to the height of his uh, abilities in <clears throat> War for the Planet of the Apes. But uh, he is he is still fantastic in in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and it is he has come a long way from from Smeagol slash Gollum, uh, and I'm excited to get into that in like five years, but. He is he has really made a name for himself and, and he is just such a fantastic actor, especially in motion capture suit. So uh, number three, Andy Circus, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Runner up, number two, best supporting performance of the year, 2011, <clears throat> for me, is Albert Brooks in Drive. He comes so close. And I think maybe if he had like one scene more, he could have given enough to push himself over that uh, limit. But Albert Brooks in Drive is such a breath of fresh air. Uh, you know, this is <clears throat> this is a comedic actor typically um, finally giving us a, a serious and, and dramatic role that is also completely unhinged. You know, he can turn on a dime from, you know, witty banter and and disappointment with Ron Perlman to stabbing a guy in the neck with a knife. And he has a zero, he has a 100 in that, in like a physical violence range. Uh, but it, it always, but it, from verbally speaking, he's always at a always at a hundred. He is always verbally at a hundred in emotion, in in energy, in rage. And man, Albert Brooks really takes to this role. He really lives in it and embodies exactly what this character needs, exactly what Win- Nicholas Winding Refn wants from him. He creates this really great. Um, antagonist in this movie uh and i i I just i am impressed that this was the casting decision and and just how much he was able to bring to this performance because it really is unlike so many of the other roles i've seen him in i'm mostly familiar with him from weeds uh and or finding nemo um and those are those are not villain roles at all like kind of a jerk in weeds for his you know extended supporting role but he's not a killer he's not um you know he doesn't he's not the villain really and this is him all the way turned up and uh man he just he he makes a feast out of this performance he absolutely does absolutely does so number two albert brooks drive the winner 
best supporting performance, Carey Mulligan in Shame. And, man, Carey Mulligan in Shame plays Michael Fassbender's brother, Sissy, to his Brandon. Uh, Michael Fassbender, Brandon, is a sex addict and uh, is dealing with a lot uh, between... And, and it's mostly, you know, being addicted to sex is its own issue, and, and I think there's plenty of information and, and drama you can mine from that type of characteristic. But Steve McQueen, in Making Shame, goes a step further. He goes a step further, and I, I think this is common among people, who are addicted to sex, but I don't know that for certain. Don't quote me on it or anything. But Brandon is also very out of touch with every other human emotion besides sexual attraction. Um, he, you know, he 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 cannot comprehend anything else. And Fastbender is fantastic at in in portraying Brandon and differentiating between his sex-crazed, manic episodes and everything else that goes on with him. And so when Sissy enters the picture, uh, she is this, in a sense, I think you're supposed to see her as this kind of beacon uh, in through the haze for him. And then that's not really the case. She <laughs> is dealing with just as much as he is. She is dealing with depression. Um, um, she's not being treated very well by many uh, by by other people and she um, she's not in a great place either and what I what I love about the movie is how it, it portrays these two kind of broken people leaning on each other for support and seeing Carrie Mulligan portray this this character of sissy and, and watching her she does a full rendition of New York New York which is heart-stopping and and her face and going through the emotions with her as she sings this song from start to finish that is in and of itself a, a journey um her relationship with brandon throughout the film whether it's as companions whether it's as brother and sister whether it's as you know enemies and and you know it fluctuates from moment to moment from scene to scene is always rooted in some sort of just just frustration for somebody you know whether it's um her sleeping with brandon's boss at one point in the movie or walking in on him masturbating or uh you know the two of them boarding a subway train uh or so on and so on and so on it's a lot it is absolutely a lot and it can the movie can get kind of overwhelming and it's, I think, to the credit of Fassbender and Mulligan and, and that the, they're able to kind of keep things grounded enough where you can understand what's going through Sissy's mind. You can understand what's going through Brandon's mind without them saying anything, without, you know, these aren't particularly evocative and emotive characters. Um, or rather, Sissy is incredibly emotive and... And Brandon is very not emotive, and they both 
kind of shrink into themselves sometimes and they're quiet characters there isn't a ton and ton ton of dialogue especially from Brandon and so when you get these moments between the two of them where it's a lot of her talking and him just kind of listening and grunting and responding every once in a while it it can be tough and it's it's a testament to both Mulligan and Fassbender's performance and particularly Mulligan as the one doing all this talking as the one being the emotive face of this movie uh how watchable how how involved the viewer can get in the story and what's happening and in how it works I, I think there's a lot to really enjoy um from a character study perspective uh in this movie and it's more than just Fassbender it is absolutely Carrie Mulligan too she is dealing with just as much uh, as he is and it is not easy and I think she wears that on her sleeve she wears that on her face and is just just perfect in in giving us this sort of sort of fiery soul of of a character in Sissy which is fascinating because it is very different in my opinion from from her character in Drive who is very more much more reserved much quiet much more quiet much um much much more restrained and I, I think she just does a fantastic job uh, she sings incredibly well. She she she's just great. She's just absolutely great. So, Carrie Mulligan, shame. My number one. Running these down from ten to one again. Uh, here we go. Um, Jean Desson from Tomboy. Nick Nolte from Warrior. Seth Rogen from Fifty Fifty. Carrie Mulligan from Drive. Gary Oldman from Kung Fu Panda 2, Rosemary DeWitt from Your Sister's Sister, um, Serena Farhadi from A Separation, Andy Serkis, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Albert Brooks Drive, and number one, winning Best Supporting Performance, Carrie Mulligan, Shame. Carrie Mulligan, Shame. All right, and as is customary, that brings us to the sixth category, which is always best original song just trying to break up the episode a little bit here at roughly the halfway point maybe a little more than the halfway point um with some some clips of some songs so you heard the montage at the beginning uh now i will announce the songs and then play a small clip from each one individually and the nominees are everything is honey winnie the pooh Hello, Romeo and Juliet. Life's a happy song, The Muppets. Place. I can't seem to wipe this smile off my face. Life's a 
life smells like a rose With someone to paint and someone to pose Life's a piece of cake With someone to pen and someone to break Life is full of glee With someone to saw someone to see Life's a happy song When there's someone by my side to sing along I reflect on my reflection And I ask myself the question What's the right direction to go? I don't know. Shelter. Take am shelter. Am I a man or am I a Muppet? Am I a Muppet? See those storm clouds rolling in Just like I knew it would begin Midnight sky at noon today Our shelter's still so far away oh. Starting with number five Number five, here we go If I can find where I listed it mm. Shelter from Take Shelter Um... This one, pretty self-explanatory. It's really not a big presence in the movie. It's a gravelly, gruff, um, gruff song that, I don't know, doesn't doesn't do a lot for me. This is a pretty weak year uh, for new songs. And I think it's an okay song. I think it has, you know, it fits the theme and, and atmosphere of the movie. But in it, it and of itself is, is just okay. So, we're going to move right past that. Shelter, take shelter, number four. Number five. Number four is The Muppets, Life's a Happy Song. It's upbeat. It fits. It, it has a lot of things going for it. But I, I think it's a little generic. I, I think it's a little on the nose, as it were. And that's not like a huge problem. But it's not a great thing either. Uh, I think... Most of the songs in, in The Muppets are, are just fun and, and jovial and upbeat. And I like the vibe it's shooting for. But Life's Happy Song just kind of, it's good, but it's, it's nothing special. Number three is Everything is Honey from Winnie the Pooh. That one, I like Everything is Honey. It's very silly. Uh, it's very simple. But it's not... Too, uh, maybe it kind of veers into being too much at some points, but for the most part, it is it is mostly f- fine within the context of the movie. Um, I, I think it, it does a lot to give us insight into Pooh's character. The only problem is with that is that like I think everybody really knows who Pooh's character is, so it's tough to say that. Um. It's it's adding a ton to the movie. It's just a nice moment. It's it's a good moment. It's not beating you over the head um, with uh, with the obvious uh, like life's happy song. And it's kind of a dream sequence for Pooh. I like the lyrics. I think the lyrics are well done. And so uh, everything is honey. Winnie the Pooh, number three, runner up, number two, numero dos is hello hello from Nomeo and Juliet. Um, performed by Elton John and Lady Gaga, uh, 
this may be the the best song song of the group here uh, I, I think it is kind of without a doubt but I, I do think it clashes just a little bit with the movie Nomeo and Juliet I think Nomeo and Juliet is just an okay movie and the scene where this song is playing is Nomeo and Juliet meeting for the first time both after an orchid and the song is fits I mean I guess you know hello hello first time meeting that kind of thing but the the, the tone of the song the sort of elegance that that an Elton John and a Lady Gaga bring to a song like this uh, does feel a little much um, if you know what I mean it, it just it's 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 similar to to speechless uh, from Aladdin it feels like a little much and that's it which means our winner is Manor Muppet from the Muppets. Like I said, this is a really weak year for original songs. I'm pretty sure I have a better crop of five songs for 2019 already. Um, and we're not even halfway through it. But Manor Muppet is a legitimately good song. It's very contemplative. It's very introspective. It gives you two characters' per, um, thoughts and, and emotions about what's happening with them. They're in separate lo- parts of their lives, but they're also uh, sort of folded over on top of each other in a way. Uh, the performances are strong. I like Jason Siegel. I don't know who voices the Muppet character. Uh, but I, I think it's a really creative song, far more interesting and far more creative than Life's a Happy Song from the Muppets. Uh, and, I mean, I think this one, best original song, I think, the Oscars, uh, and a, on a year that had, like, three nominees. And I... I think it earned it. I think it deserves it. It's kind of heads and shoulders above everything else this year. And there's not much else to it. Check it out. Listen to it if you haven't in a while or ever. Um, It's really good. It's a good song. You get some Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory as the human version of the Muppet character, which is nice. So running down that list once more. Uh, five to one. You've got Shelter from Take Shelter. Life's a Happy Song from The Muppets. Everything is Honey from Winnie the Pooh. Hello, Hello from Nomeo and Juliet. And winning best original song, Man or Muppet from The Muppets. Which brings us to category number seven. Category number seven is the other acting category. Um, Let me... Make this a little more aesthetically pleasing. Okay. Best lead performance. Again, men and and women combined. The nominees are Viola Davis, The Help. Johnny Depp, Rango. Cecile de France, The Kid with a Bike. Michael Fassbender, Shame. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, 50-50. Layla Hatami, A Separation. Zoe Haran, Tomboy. Samuel L. Jackson, The Sunset Limited. Payman Mahdi, A Separation. And Michael Shannon, Take Shelter. All right. Big list there. Lots of great, great, great performers. And we're going to start out with Cecile de France, The Kid with a Bike at number 10. Kid with a Bike. I watched this for a scavenger hunt many moons ago 
and she was the best performance I I awarded uh, in the in the scavenger hunt review that month. Um, she is. Uh, it is. It is tough to say. Um, you know, you have a movie like this. It, you know, it's an adult and a kid who I don't know. Kind of just. Um, it's it's a weird dynamic that this movie presents to us, and and it's not a bad one. It's not a you know negative one. It's a positive one, honestly. And I like that. I think that's a strong presentation for for people to see. And Cecile de France as the adult is uh, is is really captivating and and charismatic. She has great chemistry uh, with the the her co-star. Um, she is she is a, a Belgian actor, and I, I think that there's a lot going on in this movie that she is responsible for. Um, similarly, you look at something like Tomboy, where it's a lot of scenes with just kids. When you have a scene that's kid and adult, there's a lot of pressure on the adult there to twofold. To one, you know, help the kid if they're not up to snuff. And I don't think that's the case necessarily with the kid with the bike. But the other thing, I think this is more, this pertains more to the kid with a bike, is that you can't overshadow them substantially. I think if you do, uh, unless it's a scene where it's like multiple adults and a kid, if, if you're leaving the kid behind in terms of performance, which, from the movie, I think Cecile de France absolutely has the ability to do that. Um, in moments where the kids aren't on screen, I think she's far better intentionally. Uh, you can see more range. You can see um, better uh, economy of, of, of facial movement, of physical performance. But when the kid's there, she's taking a step back. She is subduing her performance just enough so that it comes across as not kind of, it gives the kid the ability to, even though they don't maybe not have the, the, the skills quite that she does, that the France has, they can still not feel disproportionately excluded from a scene, if that makes any sense. And I, I don't think that that's something that has to be done in a movie ever. Um, but I think when it's done right, when it's done well, um, it's it, it it really enhances. If if you can, her the trick with this, and I think this is why she kind of ends up at the bottom of this of this list for me. The trick is transitioning from one of those types of scenes to the opposite, and and not making it feel like she just got worse, right? And I don't know that she completely gets that. And, and maybe there's no real way to do it that way. But I do like that she is, act, from my perspective, was actively showing restraint. I think she is, is a really exciting performer in this movie. Um, it's, it's a really <sighs> tough to... It's, it's an interesting film for a lot of reasons. And I think watching this dynamic grow... 
between her and um, her as Samantha and what's the kid's name? Uh, Thomas Dorrit. Uh, you know, he is just just kind of blossoming under her her care. You know, she she looks after him some of the days, and we get to see her both, you know, with him and without him. And I think she just just manages to to steal the movie. You know, it's a movie about the kid primarily, but she is just all over this movie, steals it from out from under him, and I I really liked her in this. Number ten, Cecile de France. Number nine is Viola Davis in The Help. I mentioned The Help earlier uh, about you know really wanting to rewatch it and revisit my thoughts on the movie, but one thing that will not be changed is how great Viola Davis is. Uh, she is just great every time she's on screen. Uh, the help is no exception, just like Fences, no exception. Um, man, uh, her performance, you know, she she gives this, this really fascinating um, performance uh, in, in the help as, for the character name... Abilene Clark, Abilene Clark, and I think it's it's really impressive. The impressive, sorry, Abilene. I think I mispronounced that. Abilene. Um, you know she's working as a maid. She's living in Mississippi. We've got voiceover going on at the same time. Um, she's looking after this white family, and. She has these very different dynamics that she has to push through, whether it's with her friends who are also maids, uh, as well as the women woman she works for, the kids that she works with and for, friends of the woman she works for who are not as nice, perhaps. Um, and then she also has her own family to deal with. And that is very, very kind of soul-crushing and you know she she has just gone through a pretty traumatic she goes through a pretty pretty traumatic experience early on in this movie and she's still struggling through it she cannot really get over it and yet she's still forced to kind of work through the motions as at her job work through the motions as a maid and it it really is difficult for her to get out from underneath the foot of these white women and it's it's not something that feels like it's possible for so much of this movie that when it finally does happen when we finally see her um we finally see abeline absolute actually just take this this weight off of her shoulders it is so rewarding and Viola Davis is so brilliant at making this moment worth every single ounce of buildup we get to it. Uh, it, it. It just it crushes the the entire movie underneath the weight of how much is happening in these like last in these like five minutes or so. Uh, I, I think there's so much going on in, in Viola Davis's face and her physical performance and the way she presents herself, her body language, her voice. The, the wavering, the quivering, the crying, everything about it is 
is just so so rewarding and uh, Viola Davis is is astounding just so great so great so that's number nine Viola Davis and the help number eight from 5050 is Joseph Gordon-Levitt we talked about him a little bit already and we'll you know talk a little more uh, he is so layered in this role you know he swings wildly from on high quite literally at one point in the movie to um to when he draws his first drive uh towards the end of the movie and and breaks down he calls anna kendrick which is a beautiful scene that the two two of them share over the phone uh just pouring out his heart emotionally uh you know he he just knows how to tap into all these different feelings and all these different sides of the character and you know this is this is someone that you can easily pity um you know given having you know a cancer diagnosis early come early in the movie and there are moments definitely where where you do pity him but through the strength that he shows through the interactions he has with these other characters the vulnerability um it doesn't it doesn't push you away to observe from the outside it draws you in uh, to, to kind of go through what he's going to empathize with his emotions and and that is that is the trick right that is that is exactly what you need to do in a role like this is you don't want to push people away you don't want to have them on the outside looking in you want to draw them into you and and really give them the experience that you're going through or that your character rather is going through and I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, does a really really good job with that uh, so he is my number eight for 5050. Number seven is Samuel L. Jackson in The Sunset Limited. Have you seen this? You heard about this? It's kind of an HBO film, I think. Um, I don't think it was like a theatrical release at all, uh, but it consists of Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones as nameless characters. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson saves Tommy Lee Jones's life uh, when he tries to kill himself by jumping in front of a subway train and brings him back to his apartment his little small house apartment and the movie is mostly just them talking that's pretty much it uh i love this genre this this bottle episode this bottle movie genre of just conversation happening in one uh one location and these two guys tommy lee jones and samuel jackson are, are perfect for this kind of a movie they you know you have samuel jackson who is religious who argues uh on the side of religion who you know has been to prison who is the savior quite literally in this movie and then you have tommy lee jones who is an atheist who is you know kind of pessimistic and and out for you know sees the worst in things and uh you know has has this just bleak bleak outlook on life and watching the two of them spar back and forth back and forth back and forth is is mesmerizing and they're both great they are both great in this and you know Tommy Lee Jones very nearly also made this list but Samuel Jackson had to be on it I think the levels and waves of emotion that he goes through are are very different from the ones that Tommy Lee Jones goes through you know he's Jackson at first comes across as knowing, all-knowing, all-understanding, all-intelligent. And as the 
the film progresses, he gets more and more broken down. You know, the the questions and the conversation break da- break him down slowly and rip away and reveal other sides to him that he's buried that he doesn't want to come to the surface that he's hidden and tried to do everything he could to to avoid bringing up again and i i just i love the way he he exposes himself like that i think it's it's really really fascinating uh from a character study perspective uh, to watch these two men just verbally spar again and again and again and again uh so the sunset limited samuel jackson number seven number six number six is take shelter michael shannon michael shannon um Michael Shannon in this movie is uh, kind of what he's... He does this... He has this element to his performances that I think he does in most of them, which is uh, he can go... He can turn on the the sort of cartoonish rage with the snap of a finger, okay? He, he Whether it's, I don't know, something like uh, uh, The Shape of Water... Or, you know, kind of anything really. Everything he's been in, um, he finds a way. There's a there's a scene, there's a moment or something where all of his he's holding it back, he's holding it back, he's holding it back, and then everything bubbles over at the surface at once. And this movie is no exception. It has that scene. I think it's a really good scene from from Shannon, and he is always good at really just just making what would otherwise be a very absurd ridiculous character statement expression uh emotion feel feasible feel possible feel real in in the movie he's in in the character he's portraying uh and this is a movie that kind of perfectly fits that he is playing a man who is seeing visions of a storm and no one else can see them and the kind of crucial dilemma at the center of this movie is, am I crazy or is everyone else crazy? And I think everyone's had that thought once in their life about something, you know, is, is, you know, is, is it me or is it, can it possibly be everyone else? And to have the conviction to, to absolutely believe that it is everyone else is, is not easy. It's difficult to get to a point where to be so convinced of something that you can know it with absolute certainty, no matter what everyone says, whether it's friends, family, you know, strangers, authority figures, kids, nothing can change your mind. And that is the character Michael Shannon is playing. He is so, so devoutly sure of this premonition that he sees that he is that all of his relationships suffer in 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 the outcome of it or not in the outcome of it in um what's the word i'm looking for in the fallout and michael shannon is is incredible as this obsessed madman and he's not even a madman he, he's just a guy who knows a thing and 
save for you know one or two moments where he he kind of lets himself loose and he gets you know he goes a little overboard he's very straightforward he's very reserved and and i i love the way he chooses to to present this character oh sorry present this character as not just holier than thou better than you kind of a person but just just understood understood in his own head and everyone else maybe they don't understand but that's okay he understands and there's just there's just a little little bit of something to it that that really speaks to me um as as the as the audience as the viewer and i, I think michael shannon does a great job great 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 job so that's number six michael shannon take shelter number five crossing over the halfway point here from shame is michael fassbender we talked about him when we talked about carrie mulligan uh, and shame as the for the screenplay michael fassbender is great i think he's great in pretty much everything um and shame is one of the ones that like you know how many times are you going to see him and he he's just able to give so much to a performance. You know, we've I've seen him in other roles where he's emotionally wrought and uh, raw. Uh, you know, you look at him in Twelve Years a Slave, and he when the whipping scene. You know, there is aggression, there is anger, there is rage plastered over his face, and it's mixed with uh, despair and frustration. And then you look at him in Shame. And it's like he's never felt an emotion before in his life. Not once. Not once. You look at him in Steve Jobs, and now he's, you know, he looks at something else. And in shame, as I said, you know, he's playing a sex addict who cannot really feel normal emotions like most people can. And though that is such a difficult role to play because... It's easy to go straight-faced. It's easy to go bland, boring, nothing. But to put layers underneath that where you can tell the emotions are in him, but he can't express them is a whole other level of, of talent. There's a scene um, where he approaches Sissy, Brandon approaches Sissy at a the subway track and he pulls her back from the edge of the track to kind of protect her and they it's just this really innocent moment between the two of them she like brushes some fuzzies off of his shoulder and they exchange a couple of words and it's really nice and it's really genuine and sweet but underneath all that you can still tell you know camera behind the two of them when he turns to look at her, you can see the difference in their faces and in their expressions. Where she's kind of like smiling, giggling, and like laughing at this weird banter they have. He's kind of straight-faced. You know, he's he's holding it in. He's pushing it down. He's, he's blocking it out. And it looks like it hurts. You know? It, it looks like it's painful. Michael Fassbender, shame. 
number five. Number four is Payman Mahdi for a separation. Uh, Asghar Farhadi won best screenplay for a separation earlier today, earlier earlier this episode. And I mentioned how, just how skilled he is as a writer. Um, his daughter, nominated for Sporting Performance, both uh, Payman Mahdi and Leila Hatami nominated for Lead Performance. When you have a script as well-written as A Separation, you don't need the best actors to, to, put it, put, uh, to pull it off and make it a good movie. They help, of course, but they don't. But Payman Mahdi and, and the others as well, you know, this isn't just about him, but they, the, these performances that Farhadi is able to get out of his actors are, are somehow are, are so natural. And, and that's a big reason what another big reason of why I love his films is how normal and, and, and lived in these characters feel. I, Pam and Mahdi could have played, been playing this role for years and it, that's what it feels like, right? I think he does such a great job of convincing the audience, convincing the viewers and, and everyone that his character is is so authentic to who he is, to who Payman Mahdi is, that they're one and the same. Like you, I see him and I still think of this, of, of a separation. I can't help it. Um, you know, he, he's dealing, you know, like I mentioned before, like this is a movie with a lot of, you know, things happening at the same time. He's dealing with a divorce with his wife, with the custody of his kid, with his, his nurse, his father, uh, his, his sick father, this nurse that he gets into a legal battle with. And there's so much happening. And he is kind of at the center of it all, just like his wife is. And getting to the end of this movie is is a chore for them and i think payman mahdi is is suffering as much as anyone else in this movie he's kind of indignant a lot and i think payman mahdi is is perfect for an indignant character he he has the perfect face for it he knows exactly what that looks like um and and his character in a separation is um, it, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tough, man. It's, it's not easy to go through all of the things he goes through. It's not easy to experience them and, and to feel them. And he feels all of them. He feels all of these emotions. He feels all of these events. He feels all of these, these things. And, um, it's no picnic. Payman Mahdi, number four. Number three is Johnny Depp for Rango. Very high on this list. Um, and, you know, like I said, I watched Rango very recently. I've always felt Johnny Depp has, has really good voice inclinations and, and his voice work is really good. Corpse, um, Corpse Bride uh, comes to mind. And this is, I think, his, his best work uh in in a, since probably the first pirates movie just 
across all performances, his his best work in quite you know in a, in a long period of time. And um, man, Rango is just he's such an eccentric character, uh, which you know fits Johnny Depp perfectly and is probably a big reason why he's able to play him so well. But he he really does feel like Rango when you listen to him. And and you know, he's he's changing his voice up enough. He's he's got that just just strangeness about him as a character that in my opinion, you know, really makes you I don't know, it's it's kind of an aloofness that feels very put off almost. And I I think it it only serves to um you know, kind of like what I said with with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it it draws you in. You you can't help but but watch this kind of train wreck of a character go through this life and go through this movie. And whether he's interacting with Bill Nye as the uh, shark, uh, shark snake, um, or, or the multitude of other completely ridiculous characters that show up in this movie, I, I just I'm always imp- I was just completely blown away by what I saw from Johnny Depp. I thought he he nails the emotion. He's conveying so much, um, and. It's it's really an impressive performance from him. Uh, definitely, like I said, if you haven't seen it, I really encourage and, and recommend Rango. Um, pay attention to to some of the things. I think Johnny Depp is just just this was his thing. You know, this was like eight years ago, so it's been a while. But man, he he really knew this character. Um, it really feels like the character was written for him. And because I don't know how you make this character work with any other actor or any other voice performer, but it definitely fits Johnny Depp, and uh, he he takes it and runs with it. He makes the most of it. So number three, Johnny Depp, Rango. Number two, <clears throat> number a two is Zoe Haran from Tomboy. We talked about Gene Disson uh, in supporting. Zoe Haran uh, plays um, Lor or Mikiel uh, in in Tomboy, the titular character, the titular Tomboy, and she is she's just so so magnetic in this in this movie in this role. She has so much charisma and it's weird to say that when her character is very subdued and quiet but there's just something innate about her that you can't really look away you you're so invested in her story you're so invested in what she's doing and you want her to succeed you want her to be happy and it's so obvious for so much of the movie that she's not happy and it doesn't take a, a lot to kind of pull everyone onto your side in a movie like that, but I think Zoe Haran just goes above and beyond in that regard. Uh, it, it becomes so easy to sympathize and, and 
care for her that you know when when you see her with her her younger sister when you see her with her mother you know it's it's just like you're right there in the room with them you know she's such a natural kid actor and uh those are not easy (laughs) those are not easy to find uh you know they're they're few and far between and i think zoe haran is is pretty incredible in tomboy she's tasked with a very difficult role of being a girl passing as a boy uh and then of, of course going through the understanding and realization that she is a girl from all these other characters from the interactions with her sister who she at times convinces to hide the truth from their parents from her parents finding out from other kids finding out and and dealing with that and you know having to look uncomfortable wearing uh you know girls clothes uh you know i don't know what how comfortable Zoe Ron feels, you know, as in dresses or in, you know, jeans or whatever, but, you know, having to portray this type of a character is, is very unconventional. And, uh, to, to come out the other side and, and be believable and be truthful and honest in this portrayal is, is really commendable. It, it absolutely is. And so for me, runner up, Best performance, lead performance, Zoe Heron. Which means, number one, best lead performance 2011 is Layla Hatami from A Separation. Layla Hatami from A Separation. She plays mother to Serena Farhadi, wife to Payman Mahdi in this movie. And she at times doesn't feel like she's in the center of the movie you know i think one of the big moments revolves around payment Mahdi, and as i mentioned at the you know when we talked about uh, serena the very end of this movie is kind of on her serena farhadi's shoulders but there is so much so much work being done by leila hatami throughout a separation that i think largely goes unnoticed both by audiences and by the characters she is there through everything she has to deal with the fallout of what her husband does and she isn't even responsible for it she has to suffer through this divorce proceeding she has to suffer through this legal trial she has to figure out how to take care of her daughter at the same time there is so 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 much going on here uh, in her character and she is um such a such a fantastic performer in this movie. I think she gives a great performance because she's able to rise above what would otherwise be a very sedentary and, and very stationary role for a lot of other movies. She's kind of stuck in this um disappointing and lackluster position and it's it's on her shoulders to to sort of assert herself and then push herself into the front of the in front of the camera give herself the agency that payman Mahdi gets give herself the the dynamic role between her and her daughter her and the the maid her and you know everyone else in this movie and she does it and she's uh 
just just so magnificent at it. Uh, it's it's really fascinating to watch her move through this movie with such ease and with such assured focus that but the same way with Payman Mahdi, you, you kind of forget that these aren't, you know, actors. And they they work together so well. And, and to the extent where, you know, just the idea that they're separating may be good for, you know, who these characters are and what they're about. But it does kind of let you down that they won't get to act across from each other moving forward if that makes any sense i don't know kind of weird but Layla tommy for a separation man do not sleep on her if you watch that movie she is outstanding outstanding so 10 to 1 let's run it down one more time uh cecile de france the kid with a bike viola davis the help joseph gordon levitt 50 50 samuel jackson the sunset limited um, Michael Shannon, Take Shelter, Michael Fassbender, Shame, Payman Mahdi, A Separation, <clears throat> Johnny Depp, Rango, Zoe Haran, Tomboy, and Layla Hatami, A Separation. Best lead performance. All right, we are down to three categories. They are all big ones. They are all big ones. Let's get into best original scene. I guess original doesn't really matter. Best scene. Let's get into best scene. Uh, five nominees. And they are Chase Scene, The Adventures of Tintin, Ending, Take Shelter, Final Fight, Warrior, Golden Gate Bridge, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and Under Your Spell drive starting with number five we go to the ending of take shelter this was and and is generally the most difficult category to order and to construct to be honest you know it's it's always the one that takes the longest especially going backward it's the only one i haven't fully fleshed out um for 2019 so far and this was very tough. There were, you know, 10 movies, dozen scenes, all competing for these five spots. And who's to say, you know, how many of them are true and how many of them will still, I'll still feel should be where they are, um, you know, in a year from now or so. But for now, we're starting at number five with the ending of Take Shelter. Um, it's the ending. So spoilers for Take Shelter if you haven't seen it. But, uh, like I said, Michael Shannon's character goes through this entire film uh, believing, knowing that there is a storm coming. There's a storm coming. And no one believes him, except barely his wife and family. And the ending starts with him and his daughter uh, playing in the sand by the beach. And they're fine, and Jessica Chastain, his wife, comes out and is standing on the porch deck uh, watching them. And you can see her face change. 
and you can see cut to the daughter who's realizing what her dad and can't see and she makes a sign with her hands the sign for storm cut back to Jessica Chastain and she's staring out across the water and you can see the reflection of the sliding door behind her and the storm over the ocean is forming and she looks down at her hands and like rusty oil rain lands on her hand she locks eyes with her husband who's figured it out and he kind of looks to her for for acknowledgement for for understanding and she they they kind of nod at each other and all of a sudden you know him him checking in with her to see if she actually sees what he sees you know because believing that there's a storm and then knowing that there's a storm when everyone else is telling you there isn't one it's easy to think oh man maybe this isn't really happening when it happens and he looks to her and she confirms it and then he knows that it's true he grabs his daughter he runs up to the house and there's just a small moment between the two of them where she's just kind of says yeah We'll do whatever we need to, you know. We'll follow you. We'll do whatever you got want to say. Whatever you have to do, we'll do it. And we're we're right. We're behind you a hundred percent. And it's a small scene, you know. Obviously, a lot of big implications, but it's one that really feels shrunk in a way when this is a movie that's all about this big storm, all about this big storm, all about this big storm, this one tiny moment with very sparse dialogue is all it took to convey so much, I think. It's a very subdued and understated moment, and between Chastain and Shannon's performances, which I think are very strong in this moment, it's 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 cathartic, it's rewarding. Um, I've heard... Some people say, uh, reacting to this scene, that there's a chance it's not real, that it's still potentially fake. Um, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I don't see enough evidence to to push me into into thinking that 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 this is not really happening. But having that um, option, even, uh, just shows like how much it's on the viewer. To, to add to this movie what they bring to it. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's pretty effective. You know, this is a very small budget movie, and we don't need a huge storm. We don't need it to break through and destroy a city or anything like that. We just need it. And uh, Nichols pulls that off pretty, pretty well. So number five, ending... Of Take Shelter. Number four is the Golden Gate Bridge, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I talked about it. It's the fight scene between the apes and the humans. Um, it's also kind of the ending scene, so mild spoilers, I guess, for all these 2011 movies. Uh, Caesar leads the apes onto the Golden Gate Bridge. The cops are waiting at one end, and he signals to the rest of, of the group. Some of them 
swing across the bars on underneath. Some of them, you know, run along underneath the bridge. Others climb up the suspension cords into the fog that is above the bridge and over the entire area and disappear. And the rest um, make their way down the bridge. You've got the police waiting on the other side, waiting on the other outside, waiting just uh, a little bit outside of the fog. And there's this calm before the storm. <laughs> and then a horse rides through and comes out, tor- runs towards the cops. At the last second, um, Caesar jumps or appears from the back of the horse, riding the horse like a human, cries out, and before the cops can can really react, apes drop down on them from above, they swing over from underneath, and it's, it's over in an instant. It really feels that way. It takes very little time for the humans to become overwhelmed. And there's two, men, two elements of that. One, apes are incredibly strong and vast, but two, Despite guns and weaponry and armor, uh, you just you can't prepare yourself for something like that. You cannot prepare yourself for something like that. It is it is jarring. It is shocking. It is uh, you know so far removed from the reality that we're aware of today. To to be prepared for an attack from apes is is kind of ridiculous, right? So. Yeah, it's pretty much over in an instant. And and then, you know, we have James Franco rushing down the bridge uh, to get to Caesar to try to be the person who can kind of placate things, ease the tension, quell uh, this, this fury. And a helicopter with, oh, what's his name? Uh, he played Martin Luther King and Selma. Um... Oh, I can't think of his name. Well, he's in the he's in the helicopter. For the guy from Selma, he's in the helicopter. And firing at the apes, the apes take cover. Caesar grabs a chain, throws it at the helicopter, and hits the guy with the gun. Um, and then another guy pull the, the pilot pulls out a pistol and starts firing. He can't. He, he misses Caesar, and then Buck, one of the gorillas, charges, leaps from the bridge, lands in the helicopter, and brings the whole thing down in a fiery blaze. And I think, like I said, it's it's it's, it's not a very long sequence. It, it's pretty much, you know, attack and they win. Which doesn't sound very exciting, but I think when you combine the incredible visuals that Weta created for this movie, uh, which, again, are, are slightly outdated now, but still look very good, uh, to the choreography and the, 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 the fight patterns of these apes and, and how they interact against the humans, against cars, with the horses... Uh, it's it's a lot. It's it's really a lot going on, and 
it, it, it's just such a stunning moment. And I, I think it, it really encapsulates so much of what makes this series good. And that is letting these creatures, you know, do their thing and, and giving them free reign to, to impact this world. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a thing. Hell of a thing. Number four, Golden Gate Bridge, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Number three, the final fight from Warrior. Uh, talked about Warrior a bit. Tom Hardy, Joel Edgerton in a, in a like cage match MMA thing. They fight, I think, three matches before they get to the each other in the finals because naturally. And Tom Hardy has just obliterated his opponents to get to the end. It has been very quick. He is just brute strength. Uh, meanwhile, Joel Edgerton has gotten there through um, like arm bars and leg bars and holds and getting his opponents to tap out. And so, again, spoilers for this movie, they meet at the end. Two competing fighting styles, two very different men, but brothers. Brothers, right? And... I think it's three rounds that go go by, and it's pretty much all three rounds are just Tom Hardy pummeling Joel Edgerton, just fist on face again and again and again, slamming him against the ground, slamming against the cage, kicks to the side, uh, you know, just just punches and uh, just over and over and over, impact after impact. And Joel Edgerton, as we've seen, you know, is is a resilient guy. He's he's very tough. He takes a lot of beatings. And we get to round four. I think it's round four. Might have been round three. But we get to round four. And, again, starts out Tom Hardy punching, punching, punching. You can hear Frank Grillo, Joel Edgerton's manager from the, from the outside, calling out to him, hey, you know, dictate the flow, dictate the pace. And, and you can see the fight start to slow down. You can see Joel Edgerton creating more space between himself and Tom Hardy. And then, in a flurry of attacks, you know, Tom Hardy gets Joel Edgerton onto his back, but fails to protect his arm well enough, and Edgerton grabs the, gets him in an arm bar, and pins him face down on the mat. And now we've seen him do this before, to other, uh, not the exact same hold necessarily, but to other fighters, and it takes a minute. Takes a minute, but they tap out. And Tom Hardy, you know, his arm twisted behind his back. The the round ending very soon. He's holding on. He's holding on. He's holding on. He's holding on. And then just as the bell rings, Edgerton twists the arm and dislocates it from the shoulder. Pulls it completely out of the socket. And then we get the next round. And you have Georgerton continuing to tell him, don't, don't keep fighting. Don't keep fighting. You just got to tap out. You just got to give in. And he won't. Tom Hardy will not give up. He is, he is too far. He is too committed. And you can feel... This, this determination, you can feel the strain and the stress going on inside of him. 
You can see the pain he's feeling. He can't lift his arm. He can't use it. That's all Joe Hudgerton is attacking is this dead arm. And it's got to be in, he's got to be in so much pain. And even still through all this, Hardy is able to get through some good punches on Edgerton. He is a, a freak of, of nature, an incredible feral animal in this ring. And finally, in another hold, Edgerton gets him to tap out. And it's, it's bittersweet. Because the movie sets up both of these guys as the protagonist. It sets up both of them as the one you're rooting for. And they can't both win. This isn't the Hunger Games, right? They cannot both win. And I, I think there's so much emotion, so much heart, so much care and attention put into this movie. And especially into this scene with these characters who claw and fight tooth and nail. That, you know, it it is very, very impressive what they're able to leave on the mat, so to speak. Um, Final fight, Warrior. Number two, The Runner-Up, a movie that has not been nominated for anything prior to this and is the only nomination that it gets all episode, is The Adventures of Tintin and The Chase Scene. If you have not seen The Adventures of Tintin, you gotta watch it. The animation is really clunky now, eight years later, but it is a stellar, stellar movie and features one of the best chase scenes I've ever seen. It is unbroken, it's tough to call it an unbroken shot when it's an animated film, but it's an unbroken shot that starts, I forget how exactly how deep into the movie this chase scene is, like two thirds of the way through maybe. Um, so, so mild spoilers. It starts with um, the, the, the Spielberg lookalike character uh, and Tintin both after these scrolls. And they're at this um, musical performance where this lady's voice shatters the glass around the ship, which is holding one of the scrolls. And the Steven Spielberg lookalike guy sends his falcon to rip apart the, the, the ship and pull out the scroll. Meanwhile, Tintin... Um, the captain that's with him and his dog are also involved in this chase. The dog chases after the bird, can't catch up to it in time. Um, the bird goes back to the Steven Spielberg lookalike. He jumps in a car. They drive off. Tintin and the uh, boat captain fight their way through, uh, out of through like the guards. Jump in a moped with a sidecar, or I guess motorcycle with a sidecar. Chase off after them. Uh, they, the, the ship captain in the sidecar picks up like a bazooka, tries to fire it at the other car, misses, it fires backwards and blows up the dam. So now water is running through the city. They're driving downhill and everything just gets exponentially more ridiculous as this scene goes on, as it continues to play. Uh, you know, like 
Tintin takes the scrolls, like the, the, the papers from, from the Steven Spielberg character, and then the bird gets them from him, and then the dog grabs the bird, and then it just over and over and over, all these ridiculous subsequent moments that happen. It is so exciting, it is so invigorating, it is so thrilling, it is my favorite action sequence this year, from this year. And that is a, a pretty lofty statement when you've got things like Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Warrior and um, like Drive or Girl with a Dragon Tattoo or Dist- uh, looking way too far back down my list here um, and so on. And, and it just, it's, it's so exciting. The, I think the whole scene is on YouTube. Even if you don't have any interest in, interest in watching the movie, definitely check out this scene. It is really, really exciting and worth your time. Which means best scene is under your spell from Drive. You may not actually know exactly what I'm referring to when I say that. I believe it's the title of the song playing behind the scene, uh, which is, I believe, spoilers uh, for Drive, but takes place at the end of the movie. Ryan Gosling uh, is in his room fixing something for his car. And next door, with Carrie Mulligan and um, Oscar Isaac, who is returned from prison, he's having a party where he explains, you know, hey, look, uh, you know, second chances are hard to come by, so I gotta, I gotta make do with what I got. And it's true. And he's trying to kind of adjust back into life, and meanwhile, Carrie Mulligan is kind of appraising him from a distance, and not sure how to adjust to him re-entering their life, as it were. And we cut back and forth between them and Gosling, and he's fixing this car, fixing this car, and finally he gets up and he has to has to leave. Has to leave. And as he walks out of the apartment, he sees Carrie Mulligan sitting on the floor between their two apartments. And they exchange a look, There's a pause, and she apologizes for the noise coming from her place, and he tells her, I was going to call the cops, and she responds, I wish you would, and we close up on her face for a while, and you can see her chest rising and falling as she breathes heavy, heavily, and it's this unspoken moment between the two of them, where you can see all this that's transpired between them everything that's come from the last you know hour and a half of movie uh that's led to this point everything that's created this bond between these two characters kind of coming and bubbling to the surface and this would be a great moment if it if it ends there but it doesn't oscar isaac comes out with their kid to take some of the trash away and he acknowledges ryan gosling and comments on the fact that you know he'd been over to help and take care of the kid while he was in prison, and how you know he's like, oh, thank you for that. And Gosling, you know, you're welcome. And for a split second, you can see Carrie Mulligan behind Isaac, and she's concerned, and she asks if she can take care of the trash for him, and he says he's got it. And it's so hard to read his face. Isaac does such great work in this scene. 
it's so tough to read his face and figure out exactly what he means and what he's thinking. And then finally it, it softens and he grabs his, the kid and he says, let's leave you know, mommy to talk to her friend. And they walk past him into the, deposit the trash in the garbage chute. And so many movies would make him like a, just a piece of crap in this moment. I am so pleased that Refn restrained himself and the writers of this film restrained themselves because the nuances underneath this, like you can still tell in Isaac's face that he's unsure of how to feel, but he's, he's trying to, like he said, this is his second chance and he's trying to figure it out and trying to understand and get back to a normal life. And maybe there's a part of him that sees Gosling as a threat. Maybe there's a part of him that, that is concerned and, and afraid but, or angry. But in that moment, cooler thoughts prevailed. And he moves on. And he trusts them. And as he walks away, you get Gosling and Mulligan kind of exchanging another look again. And and he leaves. I I just think it's such a beautifully crafted sequence. I I think it's it's tells its own story with very little dialogue a story within this larger film, larger story, and uh, I think it's really beautiful. So best scene under your spell drive, five to four, or five to one. We've got the ending from Take Shelter. We've got the Golden Gate Bridge from Rise of the Planet of the Apes. We've got the final fight from Warrior the chase scene in The Adventures of Tintin, and finally, Under Your Spell from Drive. Two categories to go. Let's do it. Our penultimate category has to be Best Director because Best Picture is saved for last. So, nominees for Best Director are Joe Cornish, Attack the Block, Asghar Farhadi, A Separation, Jeff Nichols, Take Shelter, Nicholas Winding Refn, Drive, and Celine Siama, Tomboy. All right, let's let's get into these directors, shall we? We're gonna start. Ooh, let me get to the right year. We're gonna start with Jeff Nichols from Take Shelter. Uh, talked about T- Take Shelter quite a bit already, so I won't go too deep into it. But this is a movie that. I think requires so much restraint. It requires so much finesse. You know, when you're you're dealing with a movie, I would kind of relate it to sort of Jaws, in that you have to build up this tension, you have to build up this this monster, and you can't see it for so much the movie, and that is taken to the absolute extreme, in, uh, in Take Shelter, and the only way it could have been more extreme is if you just didn't get a storm at the end. And you do, uh, but man, uh, what Jeff Nichols does with Take Shelter is he turns this very simple story 
and makes it feel so grand. This inner conflict, this inner dilemma, these inner fighting arguments become grandiose and large and and just just weigh down on on the characters and the story. And I, I think he does such a fantastic job of juggling all these elements and and bringing so much more to the story than would normally be there. Uh, it's, 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 it's really, really impressive what he's able to do with it. And, um, as far as like innovation and creativity is concerned and, and finessing and, and molding a story into, into its shape, it's the second best, um, of those this year because number, again, that's number five, number five, Jeff Nichols, because number four is the best at that. And that is attack the block and Joe Cornish, who, this is a movie, this is the only nomination this movie gets this year. It's a fantastic movie. It's got really good performances, but no one that stands out. Uh, it's well written, but not exceptionally so. It's got good music and good effects, but not outstanding effects. Like, nothing really elevates over the top, but this is just such a solid movie start to finish. It Joe Cornish injects it with humor uh, horror, sci-fi, action, adventure, uh, crime, uh, you know, like, there's just so many layers to this movie, it's, it's a kid's coming-of-age tale, uh, at the same time as it's an alien invasion, and it, it, it gets the tone perfectly, it just, it nails the tone of this movie so well, it, it just figures it out from the jump, it's hilarious and still scary. The The design on the monsters is really exciting. Um, the Just the pitch black fur and the neon blue teeth and mouth are really, really beautifully made. Um, and, what, and Joe Cornish is is brand new director at this point in his career. And he really knocks a home run. First at bat, right? And to get, to achieve so much with so little, like very small budget he had, um, but he has a great cast in in Nick Frost and Jodie Whittaker and John Boyega, and it's just it's just so impressive. You know, it's it's kind of like a um, what was I? Oh, I had a, there was another movie in my head that was the same thing, and I cannot think of what it was, but Joe Cornish's Attack the Block is is every bit rewarding and satisfying as, you know, something like District 9, uh, you know, a, a sci-fi film that kind of comes out of nowhere with, at the time, an unknown cast doing ridiculously crazy stuff, uh, managing to flirt between multiple genres at the same time. And I think to, ma- to balance all that so well is is such a testament to Joe Cornish's abilities. And, and you know, he recently had The Kid Who Would Be King uh, not too long ago. And it didn't go over quite as well as Attack the Block. But uh, I think there's a lot of promise still left in him. And I am really looking forward to every project he associates himself with. So, number four, Attack the Block, Joe Cornish. Number three... We've been talking about him a lot tonight. Asgar Farhadi and a separation. Um, 
you know, it's just he 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 wrote the thing, he directed the thing, he 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 corralled the actors, he he encouraged all the performances, he he pushed and prodded, and and the result uh, from all this work is is a masterpiece. Is is nothing short of a masterpiece. Um, a separation is is absolutely incredible and um you gotta you know you lay most of that on the feet of Asghar Farhadi number three number two runner-up Nicholas Winding Refn for Drive another movie I've talked about a lot this is the seventh seventh nomination of the night for Drive and uh it does it's earned all of them uh you know he he wanted an atmosphere he wanted an aesthetic and he got it he succeeded he created something unique something fresh something vibrant in a genre that we i think has felt very stale and and um well trod in the past but refin really just pulled out all the stops uh beautiful cast beautiful performances great score effects look amazing one of the the best scene of the year uh is just it's just really across the board stellar marks for drive and there's really not much more i can say you know like the refin had a hand in pretty much everything we've already talked about and you know that's that's why he's here that's what that what gets him that's what gets him there which means our number one is celine siama for tomboy uh first win the night for tomboy but damn if it's not a deserving one i i will go to bat for this movie over and over and over again um i think it is such a well made approach to this story such a gentle and vulnerable telling of this this gender confused and, and conflicted and and Out, out, out of touch child who feels who wants to do what feels right and is feel and but has pressure from friends and family to do the normal quote unquote normal thing and I it just and Siyama is is her deft touch is is really impressive and has earned this win. I am, I am, there is no doubt in my mind. Refn is great, uh, undoubtedly so, but so is Siyama's Tomboy. Uh, I think there's just so much to appreciate um, in the way that she stages scenes, in the way that she deals with these kids and their performances and creating this narrative and this story that she wrote. Uh, you know, she has such a, she, all, all, every part of every all aspect of her is in this movie, and uh, it really shines through. So, best director Celine Siama, tomboy, five to one. Here we go. <clears throat> Jeff Nichols, Take Shelter. Joe Cornish, Attack the Block. Asgar Farhadi, A Separation. Nicholas Winding Refn, Winding Refn, Drive, and Celine Siama, tomboy. Which brings us to the final category. I know, it's been almost three and a half hours. We got there. 
final category is best picture. And the nominees are Rango, A Separation, The Sunset Limited, Tomboy, and Warrior. Starting with number five. Number five is Rango. <clears throat> Johnny Depp, the score, special effects. I think Rango is absolutely the best animated film from 2011. I think it's humorous. It doesn't confine itself to adults or kids. It plays to both audiences like the best of Pixar, and I think it does it very successfully. It has a lot of undertones, both social, economic, political. It features some fantastic voice work from Johnny Depp, from Bill Nye, and, and many others. It looks great. Even now, you know, eight years later, I think it looks fantastic for an animated film. I ended up giving Rango a 93. It's pretty high. Um, but I, I think it, it deserves it every point. Number five, Rango. Number four is Warrior. Two brothers pitted against each other. I remember the first time I watched it, um, I cried watching you know, Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton at the end. The final fight, one of the best scenes nominated, one nominated for best scene, Nick Nolte, supporting actor. The struggle that these two brothers go through, both in very, very different part points at their in their life, both needing this money, needing this validation, coming from poor situations in their own rights. It's a tough situation. And the way that we end up with these two protagonists pointed toward this finish is is pretty fascinating. I can't remember exactly if that's ever happened before, if I'm being honest. I'm sure it has, and I just can't think of it or never saw it. Or, But watching two people that you support, the viewer, the audience, are, are rooting for having to fight each other, and that's the end of it. That's the goal. That is the objective. You kind of at some point want one of them to lose. But they don't till the end. Fantastic performances, great, great action, choreogra choreography, fantastic writing, taught script, good drama, drama. Number four, Warrior. Number, th uh, I gave Warrior a ninety-five. Ninety-five. Number three is Tomboy, winning Best Director, runner-up in Best Lead Performance, Best Supporting Performance, Best Screenplay nominations as well. Five nominations and a win at this point for Tomboy. A very, very good showing from a movie that 
potentially is the least seen on this list by the most people. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's me. Uh, I don't know if it's just who I am and how I view movies, if, if it really just speaks to me. Um, but I am captivated by this story, by Celine Siama's story. And I think it is a rewarding watch. It is an inspiring watch. I think it goes a long way to show how good people can be and how bad people can be. But that most of the time, if they're bad, it can come from misunderstanding. It can come from lack of understanding. It can come from ignorance. And those are not punishable qualities. You know, those are easy to remedy. I think this movie is is a testament of persistence and perseverance in the face of adversity and and overwhelming odds and social norms. (laughs) And uh, I'm still pretty, pretty affected by it. It's number three, Tomboy, that I gave a 90 six runner-up uh perhaps the most surprising film to be in this category is the sunset limited at number two only nominated for samuel jackson's lead performance um i mentioned tommy lee jones who wrote co-wrote i think and directed the film as well it's fairly short but I just, I cannot get past the philosophical debate on display. And when you have a movie like this, it takes a lot of effort to make a bottle movie exciting and invigorating. You have to really, really claw at the surface and and far beneath the surface of these characters to, to make it seem worthwhile. And I think that that's exactly what happens. You know, these characters that start out as diametrically opposed forces don't end, uh, you know, hugging and working things out together. But what starts out as a very easy and, and simple separation becomes so much more, becomes so deeper. <laughs> so deeper, so much deeper uh, beneath the surface. Two fantastic performances, fantastic script, incredible dialogue. Um, and while it takes place all in one apartment, I think that the way the movie moves around the rooms, shifts around from the kitchen to the living room, from the table to the couch, Pressing in against one character, pressing against the other, talking about one subject, the other, one, the other. I, I think the economy of time and, and dialogue between the two characters is, is incredibly, incredibly well done. Well done. So that's number two, The Sunset Limited, and I gave it a 98. Which just leaves a separation my 2011 Best Picture winner. I gave a separation a 99. 
it is i i just i i like i said uh i watched a separation for the first time um not fully invested uh in in foreign films film in general as i am now not by any stretch and it floored me there is so much going on character dynamics economical social statements mother daughter father daughter husband wife caregiver father friends legal divorce murder there's a lot at stake in this movie and there's a lot um happening and like i said i think farhadi is is just so gifted in turning what would otherwise be melodramatic soap opera level stories into just poignant and and prescient believable works of of true mastery i think a separation is a masterpiece i think it's the best film he's made and he has made some exceptional movies it features some of the best performances three nominated performances this year from me uh payman mahdi um <laughs> payman mahdi as well as Layla hatami winning best lead performance and serena farhadi Asghar Farhadi won screenplay and was nominated for director. He, uh, he's pretty impressive. So, running those down from five to one, Rango, Warrior, Tomboy, The Sunset Limited, and A Separation, my 2011 Best Picture winner. Before we say goodbye, um, just to wrap up here, a couple stats, couple stats. Most nominated film, Drive, seven nominations with two wins. Uh, a Separation was nominated six times with three wins. Tomboy, five nominations, one win. Take Shelter, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and Rango all got four nominations but no wins. And then the other winning films were Shame, Hugo, the Muppets, and Midnight in Paris, each with a win apiece. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. All right. Uh, that's going to be it for today's episode. I really, uh, if you hung in there for all these three and a half hours, going to be like 3.45 by the time this is done. I do appreciate it. It means so much. Uh you know, uh, my my voice kept dropping out. I don't know if I sound different or you can hear the differences, but definitely having voice drop and drinking water this whole time. And then I started recording this at, I don't know, like noon, one o'clock. And uh, it is nine hours later. <laughs> it has taken me to finish recording this whole thing. Um, so it has been quite a while and uh, I'm eager to put this episode to bed uh so 
if you're interested in more statistics, uh, Circle Film Awards statistics and, and so on, uh, head over to the website, circlefilm.com, where you will be able to find a full list of the nominations and wins for this year. You will also uh, be able to find more statistics beyond just 2011. Uh, you can see every year from 2012 to 2019. 2019 is not final yet. You can go to the 2010s page and see all the winners in one section, which will go up against themselves at a future time for the decades Circle of Film Awards uh, episode. Then if you click on the main Circle of Film Awards tab, you can go through and see all records, most nominations for a single film, most wins for a single film, uh, perfect years, and most nominations in a single category, most nominations for a person. Uh, those will all be updated within the next day or so uh, to reflect the new uh, state of things with 2012 added in. Um, or 2011, excuse me, 20, with 2011 added in. And um, if you'd like to find me, or rather, before, before we get to that, if, you, if you'd like to get in touch with me, uh, you can send an email, circleoffilm at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, at circleoffilm, or letterbox.circleoffilm. If you have any films from 2011 you think should have made the cut and didn't, uh, one, there's a good chance I saw it, and it just didn't make the cut. But uh, there's... I'm sure plenty of movies that I haven't seen from 2011, and if you want to recommend any, please do not hesitate to do so. They could, as always, show up in a future honorary oversights episode, or as a, as a future honorary oversights. I only do those on current years, so anytime I'm going backwards in time uh, for for Circle Film Awards, I will not be doing honorary oversights, just so it's not happening all the time and gives me more time to really process the them and make it make sure they're I want them to be there so please do that if you if you're so inclined and if you'd like to support the show subscribe like rate review whatever it is on whatever process uh, application you're using and then uh, you can also head over to patreon.com slash circle of film uh, to support the show for as little as eight cents an episode um, as I mentioned hopefully Things should be all back to normal, and episodes will resume next week. Uh, I do not have next week's schedule laid out yet, but I will work on that. And uh, probably, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll probably tweet it or um, put it on the Patreon or something. So thank you once more, and as always, as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same goodnight. I know she'll Even as she fades from view. So long, farewell, I'll be to say adieu. Nothing's really left or lost without a trace. Nothing's gone forever, only out of place. So long, farewell, oh, what I'll be to say. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.